No commercials, no subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. And I have a feeling after this week's edition of the program uh, that no comparison moniker is definitely going to be in full effect because we have uh, what I think is going to be a powerful edition of BOA Audio for you folks. Tonight on the program, our guest is Leslie Wagner Wilson. She is the author of the book, Slavery of Faith, and it details her life Growing up, uh, getting involved with the People's Temple, eventually moving to Jonestown and escaping Jonestown, and the difficulties that she faced following that escape, uh, a lifetime of difficulties really, coping with, uh, with what went down back in November of 1978. And it is just an absolutely breathtaking book. It is uh, a remarkable, remarkable story. Uh, it's something that having read it, just lived with me uh, ever since I finished the book. It's that it's that powerful and, and really uh, resonating. So I wanted to talk to her, have her on the program. I had heard her on uh, Brian Alvarez's After Dark radio show and, and uh, was completely blown away at the time and knew that I wanted to get her on BOA Audio so we could really sink our teeth into this Jonestown story. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Leslie. Really, really looking forward to this one. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you. I'm, I'm looking forward to it also. Now, generally, uh, you know, we start out the program with like a bio background, you know, because we have people who do stuff and, and their, their thing is, you know, not related to their bio background. But your, your, your bio background is your story. Your story is the story. So I don't want to hit you with the, uh, the bio background because then the show will be over and I won't get a chance to talk to you. So I guess let's talk a little bit first before we sort of start, you know, your bio here, um, you know, like I remarked to you before we started the program, it's like I feel bad that, that you've been through this and, 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 and I'm, I'm going to be talking to you tonight about this and asking you questions and, and you know, some of them aren't, aren't going to be pleasant questions because this was an unpleasant experience. So, I mean, how do you deal with all that? And, and, you know, like you said before the show started, just go wherever you want to go and I really appreciate that. So, but, you know, how do, how do you get to a place like that? You know, it's it's interesting because when we first, came back to the United States from Jonestown, Guyana, there was such we were we were stigmatized. And you didn't talk about it because the way that people received it as these crazy people who followed this man into the jungles and killed themselves. And so the climate has changed and the atmosphere has changed to where people really want to know what happened 
and they're trying to get their heads around it. How could this happen? And so it's important. It's an important topic. So it's not hard to talk about now because I see that I see the good that it's doing. It's giving those that died, those 924 people, including nine of my family members, a voice. And um, it's important. So it's I, I live it every day, and, and I'm okay with that now. I'm okay with that now. Okay. But thank you for that. Oh, I mean it. It's it's a tough. Uh, like I laughed with you about it before the show started. This, you've been through enough. Why do you have to talk to a schlub like me about all this? But <laughs> I'm really uh, looking forward to sort of sharing this story with the listeners. Now, I guess we'll we'll like I said, this is sort of a non-traditional episode in a sense. So like, let's do sort of the bio. Tell me a little bit about you know who Leslie Wagner was leading into you know before you even heard about the People's Temple. How did how did you how did you even get mixed up in all this in the first place? And how was your life before? these paths cross, let's say? I had an incredible childhood. My mother stayed at home. My father was a top salesman at his company in San Francisco. We were considered upper, you know, upper middle class. My dad was a member of the Marin County Country Club. We went to, you know, summer vacations every year, skiing, you know, horseback riding, camping. Um, and then... Um, was able to go away to camp every summer for a week or two, you know, sleepaway camp. And I had a great childhood, you know, close to my grandparents and my parents, you know, close-knit, you know, friends. And so it was absolutely wonderful. My parents divorced when I was around 10. And my mother moved us to Santa Rosa, California, which is around about two hours outside of Ukiah or or River Valley where People's Temple was, um, you know, was stationed in, in California. And it was during the late seven or early I'm sorry, late sixties and I had an older sister Michelle who passed, you know, in Jonestown. And she got involved in drugs, you know, mescaline acid and was running away from home and just giving my mother grief. And a friend of my mother's told my mom about this church called People's Temple Disciples of Christ, who had a great uh drug rehab program for youth. And so that's how we began. We went to a couple of services up there and ended up moving, you know, relocating about a year later. So that was how we got to People's Temple. Yeah. And then, like, relocating into just sort of, like, moving to the town where it was based, right? Right. And actually, you know, not knowing at 13 that when you move, when you come to Redwood Valley, when you go into People's Temple, you're in People's Temple. There's no outside anything. Mm. Um so life definitely changed. I remember the first time I was, at, you know, first day of school and I was talking to these kids and this young girl comes up to me and she she asked me, you know, are you in the, are you um, in the church? And I, I didn't understand what she was referring to. Right. And she goes, people's temple. And I said, you know, I'm still thinking, what do what does she mean in the church? And so I said, yes, I go to people's temple. And she said, well, you can't talk to anybody that's not part of people's temple. So that was my first um, realization that it was different than anything than than we had ever been before. If hmm. I didn't know it before, I definitely knew it then. Right, right. And what's interesting is, uh, you know, like you were counting the book as you were first getting into it, then you're you start going to these. Uh, let me see where you, it says here. Temple's youth group meetings, and, that, and, they, and that's mm-hmm. when they're kind of like that's when they they start putting all these thoughts into you guys' heads about socialism and uh, you know impending doom and all kinds of stuff like that. Correct. <laughs> Right, because Jim Jones moved from um, in, moved from Indiana to People's Temple, to Ukiah, because it's you know high, you know it's, it's Northern California, 
with the telling the members that he brought with him that there was an impending nuclear war. Of course, we were in that time still to a certain right. degree, and so, um, and there was a cave that if anything, you know, we we would be able to survive a nuclear war, and so we were we were faced with death. You know, as soon as we walked in the door, it was talk about like you said, doom. And then the youth group, and, you know, then, of course, we were introduced to socialism, apostolic socialism, and that's what we studied. And then we used to have drills, you know, military drills, tuck and rolling in the mountains. Like, you know, we we thought we were being trained to be revolutionaries to save the world or in case the nuclear war happened, we would be able to survive. Yeah. It was just, it was, you know, I, in hindsight, it was it was insane. Yeah, but that's yeah. what we were taught. <laughs> Yeah, it's very like foreign to think, but but when you're in it, I guess you're you're, you're of that mindset. That's the that's the remarkable part. Now you, you talked about how the kid at school was, you know, she said you you could only talk to people from the church. Is I, I guess talk about sort of like how the early parts of this sort of like uh, paranoia comes in because you know it gets worse and worse as the as as uh, you get deeper into this. But it's like you're already sort of being they're playing mind games with you already, kind of you know. Right, and I think the difference, you know, the difference between being young and brought in is because you don't have any choice. You're with your, you know, you're with a parent or a guardian. Mm. And so you, you look at your family members, my mom, and she she's engaged, and she seems to be happy. And so you think, okay, well, this is just, this is a new life. I'm I'm grateful to my mother because I grew up in such a, um environment that we could adjust, adaptable. Yeah. And I... And I think that's what saved me in the long run, was be, be, being able to adapt to different situations. But in the beginning, it was, you know, it, it was okay because I was young. And then the more I learned about socialism and the more involved we became, I felt special. I felt that, you know, we're really doing something to change the world. You know, we're really trying, we're really going to make a difference. And I grew up in a family that my mother was very giving. You know, she started the care home. Even when my parents were divorced, people would come stay with us. It was like this, it was almost like, the, you know, similar to the church. And, of course, I grew up in an interracial household. My father was Caucasian, so looking at Jim didn't look, look any different than looking at my dad. Color was never an issue in my house. I didn't recognize color until it was brought to me in, in People's Temple. But we were taught that anybody outside wasn't worthy, that they were just, you know, bourgeois capitalist and all they cared about what you know were themselves and so the more that you were indoctrinated the easier it became to um really believe in what he was saying mm. and i remember you know going to different cities and traveling and passing out leaflets going to san francisco in the heart of the ghetto and knocking on doors. There was a project called the Pink Palace. They've torn it down now on the Fillmore, this high-rise, that, you know, we get on the elevators, and they, they reach the urine, we knock on people's door, invite them to People's Temple. You know, being, in the, being downtown on Market Street and asking for money for this orphanage that later on we found out never existed, <laughs> and collecting hundreds, hundreds of dollars, yeah. you know, begging. And But we were... I felt imp- I felt like it was important work because I believed in what he was telling me. Mm, um, yeah, I re- we really did, and so it wasn't hard, you know, for us to be able to, you know, give up things that kids do, like proms, you know, and participate in sports, and because we're writing letters all night to try to get someone out of prison, or 
you know, writing a congressman regarding something that's happening that shouldn't be, whatever. So I, we felt really empowered that we were really making a difference. Yeah. And um, so the paranoia was slow to come, but it, but it definitely came. Yeah, yeah. At what point did you meet Jim Jones, and what when, and you know what was that like uh, initially? I just him, you know, saying hello, and you know he I wasn't close to him because really what happened was. He, there was a fear that was created because we we had to call him father at some point, and he was on this pedestal, and he was almost, you know, if you touched his robe, you, you felt like you were, you know, it was that type of that's yeah, yeah. what he portrayed was this 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 person that was just full of love and healing, and and so, it, but also he told us that he could re- read our minds, and so if we have a negative thought. You would force your, you know, you would force it out. So what, what you didn't do, what I didn't do, was try to get close to him. If he came, he spoke, I'd speak, but I didn't try to have a conversation or, or anything because, you know, it was a love and a fear. Mm. It, you know, it was you loved him, but you feared him. Yeah, you, you did. And so, um, just a you know cordial hello, and my mother started getting involved. But, um. I think probably the greatest time that I think then he told me that I was his little Angela Davis, I was beaming with joy because I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm getting this compliment from father. And he's he's approving of me because like a father or a parent, you want approval. And right. that's what we strive to do, get, you know, get his approval. Very, uh, yeah, it's unsettling. It's unsettling just, uh, <laughs> just thinking about being around this guy. Yeah, so so I can kind of see how you're you're, you're put off. Uh, you just don't want to even be around because you're afraid that you're gonna like make a misstep or something, or if he can read your mind, you're gonna think the wrong thing. And it's like, so you just try exactly. to like, steer clear of him. Stay clear. Yeah, that's 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 what I did in the entire time, pretty much. Now, I guess the next sort of like big moment in your life is you meet Joe Wilson, and uh, mm-hmm. and subsequently you have your son Jakari. So I guess talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that because you know the, the, those two are you know, the two key sort of other players in this in this whole story. Right. I met, well, Joe was my best friend, actually. And um, my first boyfriend was his best friend, so he became my best friend. And he was rough around the edges. Um, everyone loved him. Most people liked him, then they feared him because he had a horrible temper. But... Um, we started off as friends and ended up in a relationship that was just, you know, my parents, my mother just had a fit. My grandparents were just through, you know, even though they weren't in the church, they met him and they were just like, like he's not for you, you know. Um, yeah. Basically because he wasn't white. <laughs> I think that was the biggest thing with my family. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that whole color thing going on and my dad was just my dad just hated him you know um when he met him but um i met joe we were best friends and then we ended up being um you know in a relationship and then i got pregnant you know and um i remember him them um well backing up joe you know one thing about being in people's temples that you were told to be honest and I had moved. I had moved in with Joe at, at about seventeen. Mm-hmm. My mother had threatened statutory rape and this and that, and and um, because he was, you know, four years four years older than me, mm. and you know, he took a he took a handful of pills at one point and tried to kill himself, and that brought us closer together. And then he, um, 
you know, I got pregnant. So at one point he decided that he was going to be honest with me because I finally turned 18 and we could actually get married. So he told me he had these, you know, sleeping with these other women. And, and later, years later, I could I could really appreciate that honesty because he actually was giving me a choice. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm letting you know this because I want you to understand because people are going to go come to you and they're going to tell you. So I want to tell you first. And I, I respected, I didn't respect it then because, I was too young to understand what that what that honesty really meant. Right. And so I tried to take some pills and, you know, take myself out, although I really wasn't trying because I left the bottle next to the bed, so hoping somebody would find yeah, me. Yeah. Um, you know. And so um I moved out and then I ended up pregnant and I remember being called to the front of the church and when anything was going on, any you had any there was any problems or you know, they called a catharsis, and that's when you would, Jim would call your name or somebody would call your name, and you had to go to the front of the church, the, the temple, and they would just, whatever it was, you would be confronted with, whether it's not you fell asleep during the service or you didn't go to work or you talk crazy to something, whatever. It yeah. was just you didn't know why. So I get called up to the floor, and, and then he calls Joe, and I'm thinking, why am I being called up? Because nobody knew, only one person knew I was pregnant. And uh, Jim called, you know, Joe comes up and he says, you know, you're, pre- you know, we know you're pregnant. And he, he then he asks Joe, are you going to marry her? And he says, no. Yeah. So I'm in, so I'm in front of this temple with all these people. And he, I, I'm being humiliated. He's telling me, no, he doesn't want to marry him. And I, sl- and I just haul off and hit him in the mouth. And he starts <laughs> bleeding. <laughs> and they hold him, you know, and. And I run down the aisle. I'm just running because I'm like, okay, if he, if he kept, you know, because he, he had a temper. He never put his hands on me, but still. Right, right. And so later on, we ended up, you know, getting together and having Jakari. And it was a turning point for me in, in many ways. Um, I was 18. And although I had experience before People's Temple, there were still things that I didn't realize until I had my child that I was just not I was just not ready to be a mom, although I loved him. Mm. I just I was too young. Yeah. And um so eventually I ended up um having surgery in San Francisco and and coming back up to Ukiah. And then eventually my sister was in San Francisco and she's I couldn't find work, you know. I got laid off and Joe was not working and we ended up living on this in this, you know, commune which, you know, this little room with two bunk beds which was just not appealing to me because yeah. we had our own place for, you know, a long time. Right. And ended up moving down to San Francisco with my sister and then it was pretty much over by then. I just realized that um there is more to life than people simple. And by that time, go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh yeah, well that's that's what I was just gonna sort of uh, sort of bring you to that point, and also ask like, you know, when this all goes down with you and Joe in the in the in front of everybody, I'm sure like I guess it does kind of lead to this, you know, where you're thinking to yourself, I, I I've had enough of this place and these people and these rules and everything else, you know, it's it's like you're young, you're 18, could you have right. even if you wanted to, could you have just bailed on this at that point, or or was it like already so entrenched in your life that they would have. Uh, sort of drag you back, if you will. It would have been difficult to leave, although I, I believe I could have, because my father, there were some families in People's Temple that had connections, and so they weren't um, 
they were they were handled a different way. And our my, our family was that was one of those families. My dad was friends with the district attorney of San Francisco, and um, and so he, there was there were things that we were allowed to do, like see our grandparents and such that other families weren't. So I believe had I went to my dad and told I know that if I went to my father, that I would have had a safe haven. Yeah. But, you know, in hindsight, I don't think I, I was confused. I didn't know what I wanted at that point. Hmm. I, I knew that me witnessing, you know, the beatings, because, it you know, they started in River Valley where people were beat with a paddle. Some beat so badly they couldn't sit down. It was just horrific. Um, to the all-night services and then going to San Francisco and then that increasing you know, then then it turned into boxing matches. And and so I was confused because I grew up in this. Right. And although, and I and I believed in what we were doing t- to a certain degree, but I, I started seeing something different. And even at that age, it just didn't make sense to me. I realized that People's Temple was being really ran off of the fear of people. And... So yeah, I think if I had went to my dad, I definitely he he would have taken me in. I just I wasn't ready, and yeah, yeah, I wasn't ready for that fight. I just wasn't. Oh, exactly. I'm sure you. Uh, I'm sure t- a, a decision like that probably would have just wreaked complete havoc on your life and everything. So it's like it's one of those you decide to do it or not kind of things. But you know, if we're if we're kind of following this timeline of your life, and you know, like you said, you know, you get down to San Francisco, a lot of it, you're sort of like you say in the book, you know, you have like one foot in the church and one foot out. Mm-hmm. You're kind mm-hmm. of like uh, you're you're enjoying the dance clubs. You're sort of just living mm-hmm. your life and everything. And uh, uh, we're close to you going to Jonestown relatively. What's sort of the mood in the church? How is this? What what is the talk of this Jonestown? Uh, you know, is it already has it already sort of begun and got up and running yet, or is it sort of like an idea, a faraway idea, or was it something you were completely kept in the dark about until one day they were like, yeah, we got a place in Guyana, so. You know, get ready uh, to move there eventually. Like, how did you? How did this all come up, Jonestown, uh, as far as the church is concerned? Well, basically, Jim says they had bought, you know, agricultural land. They had bought, you know, agriculture, you know, in the jungle in in Jonestown, Guyana. Mm-hmm. And most of us had never, you know, known. Um, we never heard of Guyana. It was called French Suriname, I believe, at one time when the British had it, and um, they were building this community for people to go and live. And it was, you know, we're going to plant our own food and we're going to live in a place where, you know, there was no racism and there was no isms. Well, the church wasn't supposed to be any isms anyway, but, you know, there was just going to be this paradise that we could live together and work together and build this community and it was going to, you know, be an example to the world. So they actually had started, they had broken ground and there were crews that were over there building building it. Um, but... I didn't. Um, so we heard of it. You know, we saw pictures. There was some film, and it was primitive. It was primitive. Yeah. You know, it was primitive. There was no, you know, concrete uh, streets or cars or. <laughs> it was just this, you know, community that had these cabins. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's not for me. I'm a city girl. You know. Mm. Um, and um, and so that's the picture. Those are the films. You know, the film that he shows. People knew about it. Um, I don't think we realized that um, they were all going to the end move. Up there. No, yeah, yeah. That's not what. That's not how it was supposed to go down at all. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Once everybody moves to a whole other country and everything, then you're getting even deeper. In, you know, 
you're the, the, just like the harrowing journey just to Jonestown from America is like crazy, uh, as you recounted in the book, because you're you, you you completely talk about being taken away from your support system or anything. You, you're completely isolated from everybody at that point. Uh, once you get down to Jonestown, it's absolutely it's terrifying, really, in a lot of ways. Um, but I guess recount for for the audience, you know, how the series of events that took you to Jonestown. Because, like, I kind of alluded to them here, uh, that, that Joe goes down there with Jakari. Um, actually, let me just sort yeah. of, uh, let me just circle back a little bit just so I can kind of wrap okay. my head around this. Because um, what's, the, what's the sort of timeline here as far as, like, what, how long have you been in, in the, uh, how long have you been in the, the People's Temple uh, before you went down to Jonestown? That was around five years by then. But okay. remember, so I'm 19. Mm-hmm. And... I take a job at the Hyatt Regency downtown San Francisco, so and I work from three to eleven. So my my way of backing out of the church was I wasn't ready to make the total move because my son, and I still had hopes. You know, this is what I was raised in. I still had some. You know, I still had hopes, and I was brainwashed. And so, but as time, you know, the beatings the beatings increased. There was this thing called the Green Monster. They shot kids in this room, and it was just getting more and more bizarre to me. Yeah. And, you know, there's talk of rumors about someone who left who was killed, you know, on the railroad track. And it was just too much. It was so much going on. And Jim was becoming more and more paranoid. And so my one foot, my one, my one foot in was me going to a service. I would never go on a Wednesday night because that's when they can call you up. Right, right. So I might show up on a Sunday, you know, might show up for a Sunday service. Okay, so but, like you're you're kind of like a People's Temple member, almost in name only at this point. Right, I'm still, you know, I still have to build the, I still have to have the relationship. And then Jakari was staying, Jakari was staying with the family that we had that we had lived with in Redwood Valley. Joe and I had separated, so Joe was in Ukiah, and then finally he he we moved down and tried to live live communally, you know, in a commune, which to me was just. You know, they wanted me to give up my check, and I remember finding this article, this document on the website that said Leslie Wagner Wilson's not turning in her check, <laughs> you know, because I didn't want to turn in my paycheck. Yeah. I just so I got away with a lot, and but by that time, Joe and I were completely separated, and uh, Jim was it was right before the New West article came out that there was a group of what they called defectors that left People's Temple and were talking to the press and sharing, you know, what was really happening, you know, in behind closed doors. Because remember, during that time, Jim was the head of the Housing Commission. He was in a powerful position. Right, right. And right. he had Willie Brown. He had Moscone. He had he had the who. He was a creme de la creme of San Francisco at the time because what People's Temple could do was bring a vote. There was a telephone treat. If there was something that someone needed, a politician, they needed someone to show up or protest or vote, it was a phone call, and you might have two or 300 people there. Right, right. So his power in San Francisco was because of the membership. Mm. Yeah, people need, so, to, people need to sort of like, uh, you know, take a moment, folks, and think about that because it's like – now all this is like you said at the very beginning of the conversation. Now all this is sort of like written off uh, that these people were all crazy and followed this guy down there and everything. But at the time, 
you know, I don't know if it was in your book or if it was in further research I was doing on this uh, on this whole story, but I I saw somewhere that like Harvey Milk, the legendary Harvey Milk, uh, wrote wrote a letter decrying the defectors and saying they were you know that they were just trying to smear uh, the People's Temple. So I mean that's mm-hmm. how that's how big time they were in the San Francisco area. They were you know right. they were respectable. That's kind of, you know that's right. kind of how it was. So you know it's pretty. Uh, it's it's a pretty remarkable thing to wrap your mind around, you know. So that was the thing was was he had so much power at that point, and what I remember serving dignitaries that came, you know, us being taught how to serve from the from the left to the right, how to do this, whatever, and you know, because there was a banquet, and but but they didn't know what was going on behind closed doors because those meetings when we had those meetings, people, when you you just couldn't walk into people's temple and, and walk upstairs to any service. You had to be screened and in, almost interviewed before you would even get in the door. And so he made sure that people that were there that Wednesday night were actually people's temple members. There was no guests on Wednesday nights yeah. because that's when, all, that's when all the stuff was really happening. I guess take me, take me into one of those Wednesday nights and, and describe it a little bit more because I'm trying to, like, I don't know, wrap my mind around the fear of, of of that situation and how tense it must have been and what what was going down. So like what would it be like? It would be you walk into a meeting, you have a seat and you sit me I'm sitting as far back as possible. You will never find a picture of me in people's temple rarely. You see me anywhere. <laughs> how many people kept, are at these are at the, at the meeting? A couple hundred. Wow. Okay. A couple hundred. And someone gets called to the carpet. Let's say someone fell asleep during a meeting. And they've they've had two or three warnings. So Jim says, you know, calls out that person's name and then says, Okay, you want to stay awake. You know, you're not staying awake. You're not you're being a bad socialist. You're not you know, you're being selfish, because that was a key word, selfish and self centered and 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 we're gonna match you up with someone to box. And I and I would tell you that the opponent, the 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 this person was always the weaker person. And they, but they knew better not to, because my husband was one of the boxers. Yeah. And my husband, my, my Joe could fight. I mean, he was a fighter. And they would beat that person until they were bloodied. And they, you know, and they, the smart ones would just lay down, they, one punch and lay down and take it. Yeah. And not get back up and try to fight. But sometimes Jim would say, get back up, you know, come on. It got to be very sadistic. And so the fear in the room was that you just hoped that you just hoped that your name wasn't called. You didn't fall asleep. You didn't make a sound. Even to go to the bathroom, you're like, you know, you had to pick your moment hmm. of when to get up because you just didn't want to be noticed. You just didn't want to be noticed because at that point, it was rhyme or reason, and that's how sadistic it became. It could be someone that, you know, talked a certain way to someone that, you know, had a question, even questioned Jim. Like, why do we have, why do we have meetings that are until 2 o'clock in the morning? And it got to the point where people, that's when the paranoia started, really began because, and was locked in because you didn't know who you could trust. And then you had people that were telling on you. Yeah. You might have someone befriend you, and the next thing you know, you're in front of the church, in front of the temple, and then they're sharing something that you share with them that wasn't, that you didn't want to share with anybody. Yeah, yeah. And so it was, it was just an atmosphere of paranoia and fear. But the but the but the question that I have to to this day is you know as a child you know we're raised up so it's different. But even for my mother, what was lacking in my mom 
that she continued to do this because I, I know I know the exact moment when I knew my mother was so locked in because Jim used to say that he could raise the dead, drop you dead and raise you up. And I remember being in the San Francisco temple and Jim says, yells out, Inez Wagner, give up the ghost. And she drops to the floor. And I'm thinking, what the heck is going on? You know, to myself, what yeah. is going on? I didn't run to my mother because I knew she wasn't dead. Weird. And so, but but for her to do that, I realized that my mom, you know, because my mother had by that time moved to San Francisco, back to San Francisco, and was living in the commune. My mother was totally, totally involved in this thing. Yeah, she was. Yeah, like you said, she was locked in. Yikes. She was gone. Yeah. Now, I guess it probably runs the gamut, but uh, what's sort of like the average age of all these people, you know, who were part of the People's Temple? Because it sounds, because because you know, from your perspective. You're dealing with all the kids and stuff, or the teenagers, and sort of the young, the young generation. But, mm-hmm. but I'm wondering, you know, is it really across the? All, yeah, I know you say they were like seniors at at, at Jonestown. So, so give me sort of an mm-hmm. idea of of you know what the demographics were like here amongst all these these folks in the People's Temple. A lot of seniors, a lot of elderly black folks, and children. And you know, we had kids that were in the foster system that were living with families. So you had. The, you know, a lot of children, because, you know, 306 children died in, in Jonestown. Mm-hmm. You had um, a lot of seniors because they were they had residential care homes for seniors. They had senior homes, so you had seniors. And then you had the age between, let's say, 22 to, you know, 50, 50 or 60. Yeah. And so it wasn't, it was not, it wasn't balanced. It wasn't one of, I would say it was probably more seniors than anything to a certain hmm. degree. Interesting. And, of course, the elderly, because one thing, People's Temple brought was, you know, health care, free legal service because we had attorneys, we had a doctor, we had um, nurses, and, you know, we fed people. People could come to the, they can come to the church and eat. And on Wednesday nights, there were, there were you know, um, concession stands where people could fry chicken and sell their goods and clothes and jewelry. And after church or during the break, they can come down and eat and and so people were making money, but I guarantee you they were giving it, putting it right back in, right back in people's temple. Right, right, right back in people's temple. Well, but the thing about it is, it's, go, ahead, mm-hmm, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, talk, no, well, you go ahead, Leslie. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, 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 no don't, worry about, how, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. How it was so interracial? Well, it wasn't. The majority of people there were black, you know. So it wasn't inter, interracial to me. Is like you know equal. <laughs> you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. Like a like a whole mixture, but it, it wasn't. It was. You know, Caucasians mainly that were leadership, and then black folks, and and a lot of them. You know, we had some professionals, but the majority of people were were poor. They were they were disenfranchised. You know, we had drug dealers and ex you know hookers and pimps, and you know, we had the gamut of everyone. It was just it was like a little city yeah. to a certain degree. Very interesting. Yeah. The other sort of idea that people always have, and I, I think it's borne out here in, in the Jonestown. Uh, story is, uh, and you said it, you sort of alluded to it. That's what I was, I was trying to jump in there for a moment, uh, moments mm-hmm. ago to ask about this. It's like um, the folks who were in the People's Temple, they were like pouring their money into the People's Temple as well, right? I think you mentioned at one point in the book, you when you arrive in Jonestown or you you know on the journey to Jonestown, mm-hmm. you come across a mm-hmm. young couple or, or or a middle-aged couple that had just given mm-hmm. like over a hundred thousand dollars to the People's Temple and. You, you said they kind of looked like they were <laughs> beginning to second guess that decision. So it's, right. we're talking serious, right. serious uh, 
money is going into this. So w- was that sort of like going on in in a big way that people were giving just their whole, you know, everything to the to the church? Yes, because um, my mother, you know, sold her house. And she sold her house, and we ended up renting, you know. And I never understood that. But, of course, those things, you don't, you don't really talk about. Parents back then didn't talk their business to you, but I knew that. Right. And so there were a lot of people that, because that's what, you know, Jim, you, you, wanted, you had to give, you, he wanted you to tithe. But the whole thing about people simple, it wasn't a church. It was designated, it fell under disciples of Christ because it gave him the tax break and gave him the validity. Hmm. You know, legitimizing the fact that it was a it was a church. A ch- it was not a church because we never had Bible study. There was no Bible study. You know, there was no. You know, we had choir rehearsal, but there was no Bible study. There was no. It was not. You know, I went. I've gone to regular churches. My grandparents were, you know, deacon and deacon of a Baptist church. So I know what a real church looks like. Right. But people were still tithing and giving their money, and then you know it was like twenty five percent. And then he opened up the communion, and once people started buying into this communal situation, and which was really preparing them for Guyana, although I don't think they knew it, that they were giving all their money to the church, working outside, you know, out in the world, bringing home their money. And I remember this, we had a needs committee. And you would go to the needs committee and say, well, I need um, socks, I need deodorant, I need toothpaste. Um, I need shampoo, and they would give you these items. I need bus fare, and they give you the bus fare, but then you had to come back. Anything, or anything that you needed outside that they didn't have, you had to bring the receipts back the next week to make to, to, to balance it out. Oh, my God. So they got right? you also, like, totally dependent on them. Absolutely. Because you, people that are giving their entire – I mean, I'm literally giving up their whole paycheck. And maybe living off of fifteen, ten, fifteen dollars a week, maybe. Jesus. There was one guy that said, "I I lived off a dollar a week, and I saved that for a coke." <laughs> oh my right? god! It's unbelievable the what people will do, you know, that what they'll put up with, you know. It's really that's the remarkable thing. It's it's like, you know, no one's they're not being forced to do it somehow. Well, they are in a way, but they aren't. It's like really weird. It's really, really uh, strange. Okay, so we so we've talked about the demographics. We've talked about sort of the numbers here. Uh, we sort of took a little break here from your from your story. So let's get back to you're on your way to Jonestown. How it all goes down. How uh, how you end up traveling to Guyana. So so I guess let's pick it up with uh, with that point in in your uh, okay. in your story. So take it away, Leslie. Well, okay. Well, first, well, I had to correct you because. Um, Jim took my son went with Jim when Jim exodus when he made his exodus from the state. Oh, okay. Now that I think about it, yeah, because I, I remember mm-hmm. you said Joe had yes. only been there a day when you got there, so that that makes sense. Right. And so that was the way that he what what the strategy of People's Temple was to separate the children to separate the families, the nucleus, the nucleus, the nuclear family. Yeah. And so yeah. my child wasn't my child. My child was someone else's child, and and my mother wasn't my mother. My mom was, you know, that's how he broke up the family unit, which. Once you do that, then everything can happen that shouldn't happen because the unity is gone and mm-hmm. the that family unit is gone. So the church is your, people's temple is your family. And um, so what Jim would do is start, you know, he might send someone, which is exactly what happened with us, is that Joe came to me because, again, they're noticing that I'm not there, you know, and 
before I started being a bad girl, you know, I was a good girl. I was on the testimonial committee. I was dedicated. And then there's this major shift that goes on. Mm. And they're looking at so so they so Jim decides once that New West article came out exposing the article hadn't come out yet but it was about to come out in this New West magazine. So instead of Jim facing it because we don't understand we don't understand those of us that are I call us peons who didn't understand the dynamics of what that meant for him because we didn't understand we didn't see behind the scenes of all the stuff that was happening, you know the threats to people the break-ins and just you know horrific stuff that. Normal churches don't do. Yeah. <laughs> and, right, you know, that's not that's not love. Um, and so, basically, Jim decided, you know, that he wanted to take Jakari with him. And because, again, I'm one foot in, one foot out. And I, part of me said, well, Jakari is going to be better without me because I, at this point I'm thinking I'm just the worst socialist ever. You know, I'm a capitalist now. I'm living outside of the world in the world, you know, and yeah. he would be better off without me. In my head, that's what I'm thinking. And so that's how brainwashed I was at to let my one-and-a-half-year-old child travel, you know, 2,500, I don't know how many miles to Guyana. Yeah. But he wasn't alone. He was with a family friend who was like my other sister, and I trusted her with him. But still, I allowed him to go. And so... When Jakari left, I was in a in an apartment they put me in because Joe's parents were coming out, and we were separated. They wanted to pretend like we were still together because his, Joe's mother was, you know, Joe's mother had a PhD. She's a very high, highly educated woman, you know, was a was a bishop of a church. And right. So this is what they did, you know, you you put you you, you acted. So we put us put me in this apartment, and they left. Joe left, and I was still in this apartment. And I'm like, great, they forgot about me. <laughs> so, you know, I'm ha- I'm like, I'm living my life. I'm still, you know, yeah. I'm going to church once in a blue moon. And so I'm there one day and I get this call. And they said, are you ready to go to Jonestown? And I, first of all, I couldn't believe they asked me because, you know, um, they normally don't ask. And this voice came into my head and said, if you don't go now, you'll never see your son again. Well, I I didn't have a clue what that meant, but it scared me because I thought, never see my son again. You know, I'm thinking I don't want to go to Jonestown. I had no intention on going to Jonestown those, that two months later. So I said yes, and that's how I got to Jonestown. And um, oh, boy. that's where this, that's, yeah, yeah, that's how I got there. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's interesting, Leslie. You have an interesting sort of, like, perspective on all this. You sort of brought it up earlier where it's like, you never really willingly did a lot of this stuff. You didn't join the church. You know, you didn't kind of, you, you weren't just out there looking for a an avenue to express your faith or whatever and joined up uh, with the People's Temple. Like, you were you were sort of shoehorned in through your family as a kid, and you had no real inkling of what you were getting yourself into. And then, you know, later on, you really don't, you're not like all gung-ho about going to Guyana and building this utopia. You're kind of, you're strong-armed essentially into it by by fate and by by the uh, gym and 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 the circumstances. So it's really uh, it's uh, I can I can just only imagine just how how tough it must have been. It was tough, but what I thought, you know, I again growing up in an adaptable family and being adaptable, I thought, okay, well, this is a chance to redeem myself, to be a better, you know, I hoped maybe Joe and I would get back together to be with my son and be a better mother and a better socialist. So I was willing 
Because one, one thing about me, once I convince myself of something, I can do it. It's just I have to make a decision. Right. So the decision was that voice in my head. And then from there, I was just, I was open. I didn't have any kind of expectation. I didn't know what to expect, but I was, I, I made myself feel that, you know, I could, whatever, whatever happened, I could deal with. But I had to go because mm-hmm. I didn't know what that meant. I, I couldn't risk it. I, I couldn't risk it. Yeah, exactly. I don't know really if we need to get into the whole trip to Jonestown, just that it's really like elaborate and it's not, this isn't, you know, you didn't just fly in. It's not like you're going to Cleveland. This is like, (laughs) this is a real, this is a real, uh, it's a real multifaceted journey, let's say. So uh, we'll we'll sort of clue folks in on that. Tell them a little bit about what it takes to get from America to Jonestown. Well, we took one of the Greyhound buses from San Francisco to Miami. Um, Got to Miami, uh, one the first group left. We we left the next day. Um, we get to you know the airport in Miami, and we ended up going to Puerto Rico and then Trinidad, Tobago. Uh, the interesting thing is when we got to Trinidad, um, we went to the ticket counter. We had an escort, and um, the gentleman said, you know, why are, why are all these Americans going to this with the one way ticket going to Guyana? He was he was just dumbfounded. And he said, just a moment. And so he went and got somebody else, and they, they said, we couldn't go. You know, you we have to, we need to, you know, look into some things. So they ended up put, putting us in a hotel. Because, you know, Jonestown, I mean, uh, Diana was socialist at that time. And so by that by the time we left, there was, you know, a lot of people had already traveled through that route. Yeah. And um, so got to, jo- you know, got there and stepped off the plane, and I was amazed. It, it was really almost like it looked war-torn. You know, buildings were not, it was not like San Francisco, let me put it like that. Yeah, yeah. And I definitely felt like I was in a third world country. Yeah. But I was excited still because, again, I'm going to get ready to see my child, you know. And um, Yeah, I mean, I can see how it's kind of like an adventure in a way that you don't, you know, you had no idea how this was going to turn out, so it's not like you, you know what I mean? So I guess you, you put on the brave face and you sort of face the adventure in a way, right? Exactly, and that's exactly what it was. It was it was a new adventure, and that's how I looked at it. Yeah, I had no again expectations. I didn't know what to expect, and um, but to get to George, to get to Guy to get to Jonestown. I'm sorry, from Georgetown to the capital, you either catch a boat which takes 24 hours, or you fly in, on you know like a small plane. Hmm. We were put on the boat, and um, that's how we traveled for 24 hours. And it was interesting because there was other people there. Um, but I remember being in being at Lamahawk Gardens when I got there. My best friend was there. And I asked her how Jonestown was, and she says, you have to see it to believe it. That's all she would say. You have to see it to believe it. <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, what's it like? You have to see it. To, I, yeah, I can't describe it. You know, because I don't think they would share with anybody um, what it was like because, Nobody, you know, if they said there was outhouses, I don't. Half the people probably would have begged for their or went to the American Embassy saying, "I'm not going," because we didn't realize how primitive it was until you got there. Yeah, yeah. And so once I arrived and it was dark, um, I was good until you know they put us on this big tractor trailer and it's rough ride and we get to this gate and it says People's Temple Agricultural Project, and I look. And there's a guard check, and there's, you know, people that I know from the states that had went that had guns. And I thought, why why do, why do they have guns? Because I thought this was a safe place. Yeah. 
and so that was my first, you know, my first thought was, why are there guns? Um, not realizing that it wasn't to keep people out, it was to keep people in. Mm. Um, and then got into the got into the compound and heard these voices and screams and yells, people happy, and was reunited with my child. And I was I was good. Yeah, I felt I felt good. You know, and it looked like a camp. I'm mean, I'm glad I I'm glad I went to sleepaway camp, and I'm glad we camped as kids because <laughs> it was. You know, it, it gave me for those people that had never seen it, never seen a tenor, they they had a difficult time. But but again, I was adaptable, so that was my first my first um, introduction to Jonestown. Okay. Now, when was this? Uh, uh, when was this both in in you know like what what year and month or whatever was this, and how far into into your days in the People's Temple was this? Well, this was August of seventy um, seventy seven, and so by then I'd been in there about six years. Okay, all right. Because I spent 16 months in Jonestown. All right, that was, yeah, okay, good. You saved me from having to do the math, so thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And how many, when you got there, were you sort of like, I presume there were people there originally who kind of like, who were the first wave. Were you kind of like the second wave? Like how many people were there when you arrived? Because I know, obviously, it gets gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So, But I have Mm -hmm. a feeling that you kind of may have been sort of in the early days? I'm not sure, though, so that's what I'm asking. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, so, because Jim Jim arrived two months before we did. So Jim came in June. We came in August. Okay. So he had just... He, so there was there was still... There, there were people there. I would say maybe... I can't... I'm not really good with numbers. Maybe 100 or so then, possibly, um, when, we, when I first got there. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, like about 100, you said? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to circle back to something you said earlier, uh, because it will come in sort of, I think, as the conversation develops about the time about the time at Jonestown, and that is, um, you said it was like mostly black people, but the leadership was white. I guess there's sort mm-hmm. of a two-part question. Uh, first is just sort of like, why do you think that dynamic even um, became came about? Because that's a strange sort of dynamic, like why all these people were following this. This this white guy who claimed he was God, uh, while these while these African American people were following this this white guy who sort of like claimed he was God, and also, you know, you talked about the leadership. I guess who obviously Jim Jones is the is the figurehead guy here. He's the one that's forever associated with. I mean, it's Jonestown for God's sakes. Um, but right. who who are these other who are these other like leaders and and sort of players underneath him that, in a way, sort of have. Well, who knows what was going on in their minds? You know, maybe they maybe they escaped being labeled tyrants from history because they were the underlings of this guy. But but mm-hmm. maybe they actually were awful people, or maybe they were super brainwashed because they were like lieutenants and stuff. But who were these mm-hmm. other people that were sort of, you know, second in command kind of people that you you kind of shouldn't cross? Also, you know what I mean. So there's the two part question. What do you, what do you, what do you make of the of the demographic difference here with the leadership, and also what's what's going on with that leadership? Well, Jim touted Jim touted that he was Native American. You know, so he didn't say he was ever white. Mm. He always said he was Native American. Um, and then I heard that basically what he said was, you know, he he re- went after black folks because black people are, are loyal, you know, which is evident in major churches. That's evident with what goes on now. People are still in these mega churches, et cetera. That's a whole different subject. Mm-hmm. Um and so basically I think that 
you know, he built, he touted, you know, they adopted a black child. They adopted a Korean child. They adopted, you know, they adopted children from different races. The Rainbow Family, that's what he presented, but that that was not in leadership. So you had you had some of the old crew from, from in the beginning days in Indiana, Jack Bean, that were there. Archie Imes was, the Imes family was a loyal family that was black that came from Indiana. You had the Cobb family that was black that came from Indiana. But leadership was leadership was basically white, and that's only because that's how he set it up. Yeah. Um, and then in San Francisco, what they had was this thing called the Planning Commission. And so, and there was some really sick stuff that was going on there. I think most, if most people had known that, they would have left a long time ago. But um, it was a group of probably 100 people, and they had these meetings, and they'd be up all night, and they were plotting and planning. There was a lot of sick, um, sadistic, sexual stuff that was going on in those meetings. But, again, the, the majority of people didn't have privy to that. At the risk of, i got to yeah. ask, I mean, so what are you saying, like orgies mm-hmm. and still like swinger parties, that kind of thing? I mean, I, mean, I don't just, want to get too I mean, deep just, into it, but, you know, it's too titillating for me not to ask. Well, there was an instance where someone had to use the bathroom in front of somebody. You know, Jim said, you're going to use the bathroom, got a bucket, and they had to go They had to go to the bathroom in front of everybody. Oh, weird. There was an instance where, where, he had, where someone, they had to strip down. Naked. Okay, so it's sort of like, yeah, it's like dehumanizing sexual stuff. Exactly, exactly. And okay. I can only tell you to read this book, and I'm gonna, I don't tout a lot of books that were written by, people, by anybody but people simple, but I will tell you that Six Years with God by um, uh, the Myrtles mm-hmm. are, is one of the most profound. It's, it's, once you read that, you'll have an understanding really because they were in the planning commission. Okay. And they were actually killed in San Francisco, you know, years ago. But they defected, and they wrote this book, and it's really, it's very. I I was blown away. I'll check it out. Okay. Um, and Thank so, you. yeah, you you know, and the readers too. It's really interesting. But I mean, listeners. But basically, so you had so what Jim started doing was, you know, because even in people, even in River Valley, he was talking about having sex with men and women. And this is why I don't understand why my mother didn't run, grab her hands and run like crazy because we that that was not what we grew up with, right? Yeah. And we're talking seven, we're talking seventies. Right, right. But he slept with he slept with people so they could so he could save them from leaving because you know leaving would be detrimental to them, you know. And so basically, that the, there was women that were mainly the leadership was really women, and in People's Temple, there were three women: Carolyn Layton, Annie Moore, and their sisters. Carolyn Layton also had a baby by Jim. Annie Moore and Maria Kassar were really the women that were running the show in People's Simple. And those were his mistresses, and those are the ones that were feeding him drugs and everything else. And so people that were in the planning commission in California, when they got to when they got to Jonestown, there was no need for that because there was no system. Right. There was no need for them to spy on people. So everything that they did, the needs committee, all those people that had a position, their positions ended because Jonestown was now just ran by Jim Jones and his women, his mistresses. Interesting. Okay. So, yeah, and so when you looked at the dynamics of race, you know, the, the majority of people were black and of color. And the leadership was white. Those that had access to the bank accounts that we didn't know existed until after the people Jonestown were called, were, the, were were white women. Hmm. Nobody, nobody black had access to the millions of dollars that was found after Jonestown. 
But that was Jim's, and so that's why when people say, well, how can you, again, how do you follow? Because he says he's Native American, he's got dark hair. He could be Native American. Right, right. You I, know. See, I see, I see um, that point, yeah. You know, he could be, you know, and you believe him, because why would somebody say there's something that they're not? I mean, most people are just most people are just honest and authentic and true. So why would you think he would, you know, lie about that? Um, and so basically the dynamics and the demographics of Jonestown were, the majority were black, and, and I think the saddest thing for me, was looking at women that were my grandmother's age, you know, yeah. elderly women that had to use an outhouse. Because, you know, and I'll talk about how the crowd, what, how the crowding affected those types of things. But that was what was, that's things that I saw later. Like, why are these women, you know, it, it was almost like a slave camp. It really was to me. Yeah, it's pretty horrifying, and you know, like we talked about the money aspect of it too. It's like not only are these are these older ladies having to use outhouses and stuff, but like all their social security and everything is getting poured into into Jonestown. It's crazy. Well, what? Why? Why did he hoard all this money? Like, I can't because you know when they when it all went down and everything, like you said, there was millions of dollars left over. It's like, what, was he just? Was he that paranoid too that he that he like he doesn't seem to make any sense because you guys were really suffering. Uh, Within Jones, oh my God. And it's like why it doesn't make a it, it's you know it's paradoxical. It's like what's going on with this? Why why is this happening? Do you have any you know what's your speculation on on why it was like that? And that's exactly what it is. It's a speculation because I don't I I can only you know I can only say that I don't think anyone I don't think I think possibly in the beginning I know Jim was using drugs in, in California later mm-hmm. you know now we find out. So he was already sick then. He was he was already sick for the things that were happening behind closed doors in the in the planning commission. Um, but once he got to Jonestown, he there may have been a plan to do something else. You know, there was a talk. We had a Russian person come in, and he was talking about us going to Russia, and we were and he was teaching. We were te- we were taught Russian like Dasvidaniya. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we were taught Russian, and you know, it, you know, if you get a Russian question. You, if you didn't answer it, you couldn't eat, whatever. But, I mean, so I don't know if he was really planning for us to relocate. I think possibly there's a thin chance in the beginning when things started going left for him that there was possibly the money there for to use for an escape. Mm. However, the worse he got, you know, and, of course, we didn't see all this. We might hear some slurring, some slurring of words, but... Who would think he was on drugs? I mean, I never even thought about it. Yeah, yeah. It never even crossed my mind. And so possibly, and then I think it got to the point to where he was so out of it and he couldn't he couldn't leave Jonestown. But, of course, we didn't know that. We knew that there were custody battles. We didn't know there was IRS and, you know, State Department and, you know, you're taking Social Security checks. We've got foster kids over here. We didn't know the extent of the investigations that were happening. And Jim was actually a prisoner in Jonestown. Interesting. So he was as stuck there as you guys were, but he just he was stuck because he couldn't leave because he would uh, face all kinds of possible criminal charges and stuff. Right. He couldn't leave. He could not step. He could not go into Georgetown, the capital. Oh wow. He couldn't even. He couldn't even leave. Wow. See, I thought I thought maybe he was yeah. just sort of stuck outside the United States, but he was just kind of in in complete lockdown. That's that's remarkable. Yeah. Um. Now what? Now Joe. Uh, to return to Joe for a minute, he because we'll, we'll get into we got a lot to talk about here with Jonestown, but with Joe, 
he was part of the he was like head of the security for Jonestown. And I know I presume the answer is like no because of the rampant paranoia, but I presume he was sort of close enough to the power base of of Jonestown that that he had an inkling that things were going wrong, but he never sort of like uh betrayed that those feelings to you, right? Oh no, no, no. So Joe basically Joe was part of security. He became when when right before the congressman left when when the boys, the basketball team which which was Jim's sons, were sent to Georgetown to play, then his role increased because there was there wasn't as much security there. But no, he would not ever share with me that we had one conversation where we talked about I asked him, you know, what would happen if Jim died? And he said there would be bloodshed. And I said, well, what would we do? He said we would go to New Jersey to his parents' house with Jakari. Yeah. And that's as far as the conversation, you know, got. And again, I wasn't gonna. Ro- I was not trying to rock any boats. Yeah, exactly. You know, at, at any time to, you know, because we'll get into the. You know, I was already had already had the, the mark on my forehead after a while from. Mm, yeah. A couple of things I did. Yeah. Okay, so you're in Jonestown. Uh, they're putting you to hard labor work, uh, you know, on cutting cutting bananas and, and sort of in, in the banana fields, and it's just, it just sounds kind of brutal, honestly. It's uh, well, you you kind of mentioned the outhouses and stuff. I guess talk about the talk about the conditions there because they they are they are pretty uh, pretty hairy stuff. It's pretty like whoa, what, you know, like what have I? It is like what have I gotten myself into once you kind of dig further into it. So I guess like talk about how, what it was like living there initially and. And, and the basics of that kind of thing. Well, when I first got there, you know, Joe and I weren't together, and Jakari was staying with the, with the children because the children were in one big room like a nursery. And then finally we got back together, and we were allowed to actually keep him, which I still don't understand how that happened because your parents didn't keep their children. And so basically um, we, got a, we got a cabin of boys. You know, we had, we had boys. And Joe was really good with kids, really good with kids. He loved children. Mm-hmm. And um, so we had this cabin with boys, and, and you know, I go to work in the field, and he did security. And then I took a class on medical, um, like a, you know, medical assistant, like taking blood pressures and all that. And and then I thought, well, I want to be a doctor. And I, you know, pleaded my case. I was able to go and work with Larry Shack, our, our doctor. And so I spent about, in the beginning, about three days, um, I'm sorry, about four days in the doctor's office and then two days, you know, in the fields because you worked Monday through sun, Monday through Saturday. Right. From, you know, in the fields you work from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And so I really loved medicine and I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be an OBG. I wanted to deliver babies. I wanted to be OBGYN. Yeah. And Larry taught me a lot. You know, I spent a lot of time in the office and studying and looking at cells and doing pap smears at one time. And I I was supposed to be myself and another young woman named Corliss who wanted to be an ophthalmologist. We were told that we were going to be sent to Cuba to become doctors. And so I felt good because I was really doing something that I loved. And even when I went out in the fields, I thought, okay, well, it's keeping me centered. Mm. You know, it's keeping me centered. And I'm still get, doing my part. So at first I was good. I, I was things were good. We were getting a quarter chicken, rice and gravy, and peanut butter fudge, which I love today, <laughs> um, on Sundays. You know, on Sundays, and and you know we sit around, we talk, and of course Jim would be on the microphone or 
you know, on Sundays we would listen to BBC because, you know, we, we saw, we heard nothing except for what was coming into us. We didn't know what was happening outside of, outside of Jonestown, except right. what we were being fed. And so I was okay. I was okay. I was okay. You know, the outhouse thing was difficult for me. It was the showers because the showers reminded me of the showers they showed at Auschwitz, the big showers with rows of shower heads. Yeah. You know, and, and that's what it reminded me of, like, like the showers in the concentration camps. And you had to, so there's no there's no privacy. You had two minutes to take a shower, and somebody would come up to you and say, you've been in here two minutes, it's time to get out. You know? Oh, God. And, of course, the wa- yeah, of course, the water was cold, and that's why I felt for the seniors, because there was no modesty. You know, there was, you, you, you couldn't be modest. It was just no way. And then as time increased, you know, more people came. And so the cabins were cabins that had bunk beds, and then some people would sleep in the loft, you know, on top, which was nice because it was you had a lot of space, even yeah. though it was kind of close, like an attic, you know. And you had couples' cottages and you had single cottages. So the couples, if you were a couple, then you would sleep. It might be six couples in that cabin with you, hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. So it's not. Yeah, it's not like a. It's not like a bungalow for just you and your and your sweetheart. Yeah. Oh no, no! You're sharing that cabin with other married couples, <coughs> and and so and then you had the singles cabin. You know, the men and the women was separate. space an had, issue? As more people, I know, like food supply was an issue, but was like space for sleeping arrangements and all that an issue? As more people came, yes, because they couldn't keep up. They couldn't. They couldn't build fast enough. Yeah. You know, so some people were sleeping on the floors, and some people might have three people in the loft versus you know were built for one or two. And what was um, what was what was like? What was Jim living like down there? You know, did he have kind of I, like? Did he have? You know, was he kept away? What was that? What was his his living arrangements? He was down. He he wasn't near everybody else. He was down behind the doctor's office. So no one. I never went to Jim's house. I never stepped in. No one stepped inside Jim's house unless you were invited. And there was very few people that were invited. But you know, later on, I heard there was a refrigerator. You know, he had steaks and. Dr. Peppers and candy. You know, they ate well. Right. They ate well. We didn't. Yeah. They kept you guys, yeah, they kept you guys in the dark about all that. Um, right, because, you know, how, how, would, how would father be? You know, he's supposed to be a socialist leader. He's supposed to do with that, too. We're also be eating the same. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah. Right. Just even beyond the... Uh, just even beyond the like the political end of it, it's like just the human nature of it. I think there would be like a revolution, an uprising if people, you know what I mean? It's like people would just be, they would snap, you know, when if they found that out. Um, right. So, so you're kind of you're settling in here. You're fitting in. You're feeling you're feeling all right and everything. And I think, uh, you, as you note in the book, things turn sour here with this medical job because that's when Jim's mm. wife. Um, and talk a little bit about her because she. You know, you would think, well, I guess if he had this harem of, of lovers, uh, God knows what's sort of like motivating her, but, but I guess we'll, we'll get into that. But, the, but the, the, the gist of where I'm going with this is, you know, things turn sour with you because they take you pretty much off the medical job. They cut you down to like one day a week um, mm-hmm. for, for really sort of shady uh, reasonings. And, uh, and that's, I think, when you kind of are like, all right, what, what, what's going on here at this place, right? Then I recognized color because it was brought to me. Mm. Um, and I was working in the medical field, and Marcelin comes up to me with someone that I went to school with, and, and she's a you know Caucasian girl and blonde hair, and she says, you know, um, Pam, I mean, Pam Burns. 
so she can't work in the field. So you're going to go out back out in the field so many days a week. And I said, well, I burn because I'm, you know, like, you know, I'm, I, everybody, anybody can burn. Okay. (laughs) So I go, I burn. And she looked at me like, are you getting, you know, are you being insubordinate? I I was really upset because I thought, wait a minute. I'm supposed to be going to school to become a doctor. I'm studying to be a doctor. And I have to work back out in the fields because so that that's when I actually saw race. Mm. And it's crazy to think that I, I didn't really recognize it before, but I rec that's when it all hit. I was like I was I was so angry that I was shaking mm. because the realization came to me that this is race. And Marcelin was one of these people that walked around sweet, but she had a little temper too. Yeah. Um but she was just as, you know, just as responsible as Jim was because she put up with this for years. She knew exactly what was going on. So I don't give her any she was an abused woman, obviously. Um in many ways I'm sure, probably not physically, definitely emotionally and spiritually and you know oh, yeah, mentally yeah. abused for sure. And fearful of him, I'm, you know, because of what she had to witness and know, mm. and him humiliating her, having other women, and then bringing the child into the two children. Apparently, supposed to be two children into the world um, that were out of wedlock, outside of that marriage, and so she, she had her own demons to, to battle with. But that's when I recognized that I looked at I looked at Jonestown and thought, this is I I, I just thought this is like we're back in Mississippi picking cotton. Exactly. Yeah. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. For lack of a better term, it's like it's rubbed you the wrong way, but are you at that oh. point sort of feeling in danger? Or or had that already come up before, you know? At, at what point did you sort of like feel like uneasy about your own personal safety and the safety of Jakari in this place? When I wrote a letter to my friend saying that I wanted to leave, and the letter was found. Well, let me put it like this. The letter, the, on a Wednesday night, we still had those Wednesday night meetings. Mm-hmm. My name was called out. The letter was read that I wanted to leave Jonestown. And that's when things hit the fan for me. Yeah. And so that's when I feared for my life. And then I realized that, you know, because I hit, a, I hit all that because you learn how to hide. Mm-hmm. I didn't talk to anybody about anything negative until after that I met someone who got us out. You know, her boyfriend got us out. But before then, I was just trying to deal with things. And I couldn't, for me, I could, if I, even with the suicide drills, if I had actually believed that anything was going to happen the way it did, I don't, mentally I couldn't have survived. I know I couldn't. And so for me, the easiest thing for me to do was just to move through quietly without being, you know, without showing any kind of uh, remorse or any kind of dislike or distaste. Yeah. Or, you know, dissatisfaction until a letter was found. Once a letter was found, then I had this mark on me. And then I felt that I was being watched. And I was. I kind of presumed. I was, oh, I was exposed. Yeah. You know, I was just, I was exposed. I kind of presumed just based on how things went down that, uh, how did you even try to mail the letter? I figured they just took all outgoing mail and read it all because they, they were, you know, super super paranoid and everything. So I figured that's probably how they got the letter. Is that possible? Well, they did, but I wrote, well, my friend was there. I gave her the letter. Oh, oh okay. I gave, I, I gave her the letter, and I either gave it to her or fell in my pocket. I, you know, because a long time I didn't want to believe that she turned me in. Hmm. 
I just I couldn't mentally grasp that that she would actually, but she she had been to church since she was a little girl, so possibly. But yeah, okay. I just thought because on the letter I said tear this up as soon as tear this up as soon as you read it, mm. and it ends up in the hands of Jim being read in front of everybody. And that was the one of the most horrible nights. That's yeah. Well, that's the that's you know you say you felt like your life was in danger. Wait, I mean. Did you ever see or encounter like anybody who was like, "All right, I've had enough. I'm out. I want to go home. I want to go back to America." Um, mm-hmm. And and what became of those people uh, if you if you ever saw it? People that wanted to leave. There was a, there was really just one person that made it out. His name was um, Broussard, and we we don't know where he is. He I don't know. We don't know how he got out, but he got out, and we don't know where he where where he ended up. Um, that was the only person that I know that actually left and, and got out of Jonestown before, way, way before things started going really, really south. Right. But basically, if you, if you were, there was kids that tried to run away, um, or people that said I don't want to sleep with Jim, or that were voicing their dis- their, their distrust or going up against him, they were put in what's called a special care unit, and in that care unit, they were shot up with Thorazine, medicated. And I remember seeing kids walking around like just following, following somebody, one of the nurses, like zombies. Yeah. Just like just like zombies. And so that's what would happen. There was a box that people were put in, you know, and um, a hole and kept in there. Though I never knew where it was and didn't didn't want to know. So there was these type of abuses going on there, you know. Besides the still the boxing matches and, but when I got in trouble, there was a crew called the Learning Crew. And you were put on the learning crew. I was put on the learning crew for two weeks. And you had to run everywhere you went. And, you, you know, I remember we're in, like, very humid weather. We're in, we're in South America. And you couldn't, look at, you couldn't look anybody in the eye. And we ate separately. We moved separately. We worked separately. But it was, that was, you know, once you got on the learning crew, you were, you were a marked person. Like, this is a troublemaker. Yeah. And so that's what happened to me. Oh, my God, Yeah. Then it's like you're you're already super paranoid. People are already like watching you, and yeah, the slightest right. thing is is uh is is really potential for disaster. Now at this point, uh, at what point sort of does the does the white knights start happening, and sort of this like we're we're you know in danger here that that, that he starts telling you guys that you're in danger, not that you, not that you're in danger from him, but that you're in danger from some outside forces. Like what? When did that all start happening? That started out about six, seven months after I got there. And that's when Jim started. You know, there was an onslaught of people. Of course, his legal battles were increasing. Of course, we didn't know that. So his the way he was starting this was with the revolutionary suicide. Would you, would you die for the cause? You know, and the first test was having some punch in the front and calling people up to, to drink it. And I re- remember him the first time coming to me and said, "Would you die? For the, would you die for socialism?" And I said, "Yes, Father." Praying, you know, that he wouldn't actually make me drink it. Yeah. And it's weird because he has a kind of look in his eye. But um, and so he went on to the next person, and we ended up, you know, then it, he said it was a test, and then we had another one, and it was a test. And at one point, he talked about putting C, putting everybody in the cabins, right? Putting C four in there and blowing ourselves up. Oh my God! And I thought this guy is lost. And I'm thinking, okay. I said, just my luck. I'll be laying there with no arms or something, you know, suffering. And but he says, oh no, but people might not people might not die right away and suffer. And I thought, this is it's really going to a whole different direction that I don't want to be involved in. I, I'm I'm done. You know, I'm I'm really 
looking at this like there's no I didn't and I didn't see a future for us. There was no talk of the future. Yeah. All that was all that was gone. Yeah, because clearly, like in his mind, he's probably like he's realizing that he can't keep getting you know that the noose is tightening on him. It seems you know because it sounds like absolutely he's getting more paranoid and. What 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 you say like he was on drugs and stuff like what was he what was he doing as far as these as far as drugs go? I well there was a bridge what's I think and he was there were he was shooting up I want to someone said heroin oh god you know um right he was and drinking there you know, was liquor there but I mean sometimes he would you could hear him on the on the loudspeakers the words were slurring he would just say you know oh father's sick he's not feeling well and he would say that I'm not feeling well but. Most of the meetings were us, you know, we were just a burden on him. It was just, we were a burden. Everybody was, you know, nobody's supposed to be having sex and, you know, this, you know, we weren't working hard enough and we were complaining too much. It was it was almost, it got to the point to where we're, I'm thinking, why, then why are we still here if, we're, if you're so dissatisfied with us? Yeah. It's a very b- bizarre sort of, uh, <laughs> you wonder, like, you just really would love to sort of know what was going on in the minds of all, all all these other people at the time. You know what I mean? It's like, it's so like right. if, this, if this one domino had just fallen. You know, like you talk in the book about how you thought about killing him. You know? Oh my gosh, I just wanted to see him end. I just, I was tired of him. I was just so sick of it. So sick of it. Yeah. You really wonder, it could have gone and a whole then, different direction, you know, if, if if different things had happened. You know what I mean? All, who knows what would have, you know. It's, it was a very combustible situation, is probably the best way to put it. Oh, it was. And then I think with um, us being sleep deprived, because what ha- what started happening was, you know, he there was an alarm, like a, a loudspeaker, that, a siren. So when there was trouble, the siren would go off, and it started going off in the wee hours of the morning. It got to the point to where we were sleep. I was sleeping in my clothes with shoes right by the bed because it was you were gonna you were definitely probably gonna get up in the middle of the night and take grab your children, run to the pavilion, you know, and put the children behind picnic tables while you waited to, because there you know you hear gunfire in the in the in the, in the jungle. Yeah. Only to find out after I came back from Jonestown, it was our own security doing that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> What is the the games? The games now is this? Oh my god! You talked about how like the his harem, for lack of a better term, uh, were kind of running mm-hmm. the show too. You think a lot of the? I just wonder, sort of like who was really pulling the strings all this time towards towards the end. If he was like all drugged out and everything, if these people, presumably they were on drugs and 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 stuff too. Maybe maybe it's just this sort of like vacuum of of like uh, sober, you know. Leadership or sober sort of uh, oversight over this over this mass of people. I think that the three women truly those are the ones that were running Jonestown. I think, and that's that's the interesting thing that it could have went a different way. There was a letter found that one of his mistresses was saying, you know, we can. There it was actually a plan, like we can go, we can we can go to Cuba and then slowly bring people over. You know, there was a plan being put in place for him to leave. For for him to leave, right? And his and his and his entourage, those that were close to him. Oh, maybe just like take the money and bail or something. Right. Oh God, you wish he had. <laughs> Jesus, this is. Oh my gosh! Yeah. I mean, we could have some. Yeah, we definitely would have been home at some point. Exactly. You, you know, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, it's uh. Well, you know, it's. Well, we'll get to that day in November, but uh, you're. Mm-hmm. You you try to escape. I mean, you go you go uh, you hide your glasses. 
and um, and then you you go on this trip to Georgetown to uh, presumably get glasses. They let you go, which is like a whole right. you know. I'm trying to sort of jump ahead here because we've we've gone already well over an hour, and I I don't want to uh, miss too much here as we get to the unfortunate climax. But um, so now then you come back. Joe finds the glasses, but from I'm I'm trying to recall. You never really got called out for all that in front of the in front of the uh congregation if you will right no no because he did this is before this is before this is um this is before i wrote the letter oh, okay. because you know okay. I, they would never let me le- they would never have let me left if i if they had seen that letter before so this is this was my first attempt to get to Guyana, get to georgetown mm-hmm. to get to the us embassy to call my father yeah that was, you know, that was the first attempt. I, I didn't plan on leaving because Jakari was still there. Right. But for exactly. me, just to get to try to get contact with my dad was what I was trying to do. Hmm. And you know, that's that. It's important. That's an important point to raise because I, you know, people listening right now, they may have already forgotten. You know, you've got a young son here in this place. You're an amazing mother. You know, you, uh, you know, a lesser person would be like, I'm getting the fuck out of here, and I'll. I'll come back and figure it out later, or I'll bring a cop, or you know, or somebody to get my kid back. But you know, you 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 put it all together here at the end, and uh, it was it was pretty amazing. So now we'll 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 get right up to the day here, you know, because it's mm-hmm. it's uh, a lot happens, you know. Mm-hmm. You guys knew, I guess. Talk about sort of the events leading up to. November 18th, you know, because you guys, because the heat is on now on Jim, big time. Right. And the, 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 there's a group called the Concerned Families. They're putting pressure on. They finally sort of mm-hmm. have got the attention of U.S. officials. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a, a delegation comes to to, uh, to John, uh, excuse me, to Jonestown. Mm-hmm. So I guess mm-hmm, that's, the, we'll set the stage there. So tell people sort of like how this happened and how it sort of was the ultimate uh you know, straw that broke the camel's back on this whole story. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> November 17th, we were told that, you know, there was whisperings that the concerned relatives were in Georgetown and, you know, Jim was not going to let them in. And then on November 17th, we, well, we were told that week we were told we couldn't go deep into the jungle to work. We had to work like on the outskirts to be close because we there was a potential attack getting ready to happen. And so on the 17th, probably around, you know, 12, 1 o'clock or so, the siren goes off, and we the once the siren goes off, everybody you know emer goes to converges to the pavilion, which is where everybody you know the meetings take place and, mm-hmm. and such. And so, I run into the kitchen and grab this butcher knife and stick it down the front of my pants for protection because I'm thinking we we might leave that night because the the people that the people that I connected with who said I they had to vote me in, but I couldn't I didn't know who was leaving. Um, with me because of who I was married to. They really didn't trust me, but because I was bringing Jakari, luckily my friend, who I befriended and trusted, talked her boyfriend into letting me go, with, and the others voted me in. Mm. And so Diane says to me, you know, uh, we go to the pavilion, we're sitting next to each other, and she says, we're going to leave tonight. We're going to escape tonight. And mind you, I had no I, I didn't ask where we're going, what the direction was. I didn't ask any questions. I just said, okay. So Marcelin is at the pavilion, and she's telling us that, you know, the Congressman Ryan is coming with some of the relatives, and we're to put on our, you know, put our best foot forward. And if you're asked any questions, you know what to say. Jonestown's the best place you've been, yada, yada, yada. Everybody knew the spill. Right. 
and for us to go and get cleaned up and put our Sunday best on and, you know, meet back at the pavilion at a certain time. And so Congressman Ryan and his entourage show up, and, you know, I'm sure you've seen the videos of everybody, you know, the performances that they put on, because that's what we did. We knew how to entertain. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the two-minute applause, standing ovation he got when he said that he heard that Jonestown was the best place and he could see why. And so I was in the back, you know, um, near the the path. And um, Diane had told us, you know, we're gonna we're gonna you know wait, we're gonna you know we're gonna we're gonna leave that night. Well, then she comes to me. She says, Vern Gosney passed a note. And we're like, what? So we're like, she goes, we can't go tonight. We're like, okay. She said, we'll go first thing in the morning. So the congressman was there, and everybody was happy, apparently, you know, putting on the show that we're supposed to put on. And I was standing next to my mom, and I said, Mom, there's so many things that are going on here that good. You know, like there's there's somebody, there was somebody that, needed to go into town because they had lupus that take you know be taken care of and they they wouldn't they wouldn't let her go because uh, they were concerned about whether or not she would leave or not. Yeah. Those those types of things that just were destroying me and she looked at me and she said, "Baby, I'm tired." She was 50 years old. And I said, "Okay, my plan was to go and, you know, leave and bring my family, get my dad and get 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 my family out." My sister had just come 2 months before. So that night, the air was, I mean, it was thick with, you know, apprehension, fear, um, fear of the unknown for sure, because we're, it looked like everything was okay. It looked like everything was going to be okay until Vern Gosney passed that note. Right. And this is a note that's like, started, I want to get out of here, you know. just so Exactly. Know. Yeah. The first one. Yeah, the first, you know, the first one. And the only one that I knew of. And so the air was just tense. It was really... It was just, it was surreal almost. And, mm. and so we woke up the next day and um, we met at the kitchen. And I remember meeting someone on the on the path who was close to Jim. And I asked him a question. He just looked at me and said, not now, not now, with this kind of panic look on his face, walking very quickly. And so, but the night before, I had to share this because it was so profound, but I didn't know, I didn't see it. So they fed us really well. We had a really good dinner. Mm-hmm. And we're just and Diane says to me, They're fattening the pigs before the slaughter. I'll never forget that. Huh. And I said, Diane, don't say don't say that. She goes, They're fattening the pig before the slaughter. You know, and she's but she never she we never talked about that like like actually dying. Yeah. There. And and so, you know, ultimately that's what happened. But um and so we got to go, you know, we met at the kitchen that morning. Were you ready for this story or you want to? No, no, no. I'm, 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 in, I'm in awe. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm in rapt attention, so don't mistake that. I'm sure, I'm sure the listeners are as well. That's why. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let me think for a moment if I had anything uh, that, I, uh, that I was mm-hmm. going to cut in on uh, while you were talking there. But I think we're, yeah, I think we're – well, you said uh, the first note, actually. Let me just ask you about that so I don't forget it because I will forget it uh, if I if I don't mm-hmm. ask about it. You said he, he passed uh, a note, the, and then you sort of mm-hmm. clarified or, or corrected yourself. You said the first note that I knew of. So what, what do you mean that 
there were other notes where there were other people who were like uh who kind of joined in did this create a sort of tipping point well, I mean I know what happened obviously but right but sort of what was well, the mood there at that point about that well once Vern passed a note it was almost it was just I was in shock like oh my god he actually there, you know there's somebody else that wants to go although I knew there was people that wanted to leave but there's a, there's someone that actually grabbed somebody and passed a note yeah that was that was the bravery of just that that act was incredible to me, and and I thought Vern, okay, because Vern's like this cool, just a cool cat, cool, you know, nice guy, and um, and because it's the people that even the people that I met at, who left with us, I was totally shocked that they that they wanted to leave mm. because you didn't discuss it. Everybody pretended like they were okay. You had to, and so I'm saying that because then, of course, later on, you know, after we left, we found out after. <laughs> everything happened that who, who was actually trying to get out and, and some that actually did that day, you know, because remember there's only 32 survivors that actually walked out of Jonestown out of, out of 918. Yeah. And so, um, we meet at the, we meet at the kitchen. I grabbed Jakari and Diana gave me a new pair of tennis shoes. And that's all I had. I only had the clothes that I had on me. I wasn't trying to cause, draw any attention myself. Right. And so we get to the we get to the kitchen and 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 um, we we meet there and I see the other family, and I'm and I'm thinking oh my gosh I can't believe that you want to go too in my head I'm not speaking this, mm-hmm. and then Joe Joe comes and he says where are you going? And we said on a picnic, and it was so you can't make a picnic in Jonestown when the kitchen you eat when they tell you to eat and there's right. no way you can go if you're hungry and go make a sandwich it's not it wasn't even a it was just the most insane excuse or reason that he could have tell, thought of to say, but it worked because Joe, his mind couldn't even accept that. You know, it was so out the park that he couldn't even, it didn't even click to him like picnic. Yeah, yeah, And he yeah. said, well, he, you know, he says, well, you're not taking Jakari. And he grabbed Jakari. And I remember looking at Richard, who let us out, Richard Clark, his past, you know, now, um, and he he looked at me like, don't panic, and just hold on, hold on. So I go see my mom at the library, and I tell her, you know, I, I said, I love you, Mom, and I hug her and I kiss her, not knowing it was going to be the last, you know, time I ever was mm-hmm. able to see her or, 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 or love her, you know, love on her. And um, she says, where are you going? I said, on a picnic. And she gave me this look like, you're not going, where are you going? <laughs> you know, I think she probably, you know, because she knew me. Yeah. So what, are, what are you What are you up to? And she just hugged me tight, and we kissed each other, and I went back to the area, and Joe comes back, and he says, take Jakari, but don't go. Today's not a good day. And I said, okay. And as soon as he turned his back, you're he right. took off. But someone but someone said to me, someone came and said, your sister's looking for you. And Richard said, we can't. Leslie, we got to go. We got to go. We're going to come back and get her, come back and get her. So I said, okay. I I, I live with that for, for years. Hmm. Um, and... Um, let me jump in here and just ask. So, okay, so you're leaving that morning. In the timeline of sort of of the official events, what's the the congressman? He's still there, and he's he's going to leave later in the day. That's how it goes down. Well, that's how it's supposed to go down. You know, yeah, he's still yeah. there. Yeah, he's still there because he stayed the night there. Him and um, Congressman, you know, Spear, Congresswoman Spear, they stayed the night there with you know I think one of the person. Everybody else was sent to Port Kaituma, mm-hmm. you know, to stay there. The rest, of, the rest of his crew. Yeah. Okay. So they're planning so on like leaving that day, but, which is a good time to go for you guys to escape because it seems like there was, uh, uh, you know, a lot of attention was more on keeping things on, on uh, you know, up and running. I guess you could say for the uh, 
for appearances, keeping up appearances is the word I was looking for. Exactly. Exactly. Because it was too just too much activity. We we felt like it was it was the only time to leave. Mm. That that was our that was our window to okay. go. And so we proceeded up this hill and if I had a picture of it, you know, it's right in front of the pavilion but it's where the bananas are planted, the majority of them. But they weren't full grown, you know. And so we walk, we're walking up this hill and I'm waiting for a gunshot because I'm I can't believe that no one's seen no one has no one has glanced up to see these, you know, nine people walking up this hill. Right. And no one's seen us. It was just uh, so I was waiting for the for the shot. And we had decided, you know, once we took off that we, you know, gave each other's family's phone numbers in case some of us didn't make it out because we were prepared to die that day. And I knew that if I was caught, I would be it would be over for me. But not knowing what was to come. Right, right. You just thought it would be like you would, you know, you'd be punished to a degree that, that you know, yeah. maybe they'd kill you. I'd be in the, yeah. yeah, in the special care unit, shot up with Thorazine. That was gonna, my life, as I had known it, as bad as it was, was going to be over. And all of us. Right, this decision to go at that point, that's like you're making the ultimate life-changing, you know. No matter what happens after this, it's like life will be drastically different one way or the other, however this goes down. Right, 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 right. Yeah, so And um, so we proceed to, yeah, I mean, we proceed to walk out and, and you know, we get, we get over the top of this hill and I'm shaking, I'm so scared. And um, Diane had given the children, because she worked in the pharmacy, a concoction of... Um, the flavor aid and Valium to calm them. Mm. Okay, so we get out. We you know, we end up getting lost, and we're we're, we're because, because I didn't know what, which direction Richard was going. But Richard's Richard's plan was to go to Port Kaituma, and that was on the left side of the road. And we ended up we heard the truck come with people. We we dived in the side. We dived on the right side of the junk because they had more bush. Mm-hmm. And we hit. You know, we just put Joe put your car underneath me and the other kids, the parents and. We lay there and we saw the tractor trailer come back with the rest of the crew and 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 then we, so we ended up getting lost because that was not the route that Richard had cut out. So we ended up being close to the guard shack, so close that you can actually hear the voices. Well, we couldn't. The guard shack was on the left hand side. We couldn't. We couldn't cross to get to Port Kaituma, and that's where Richard. That was the plan for us to go to Port Kaituma. Yeah. And I guess the plan ultimately was to go with you know was to go with the congressman. Ah, okay. That so makes we, sense. Yeah. Yeah, because they're leaving from from Port Kaituma. Right. So um, we get out of this clearing, and Richard's like, you know, we're going to go to Port, Port Kaituma. I said, well, you know, that's only seven miles away. Only seven <laughs> miles away. And um, he says, well, the, the other other choice is Matthews Ridge. He goes, that's thirty something miles. I'm like, I have to go. I have, you know, I said I have to go to Matthews Ridge. I can't. Port Kaituma's too close. Joe's going to find me. Right. And because we had no way to get across the road now to port, to go towards Port Cartoon, we ended up going the 30-something miles to Matthews Ridge. Yeah. And um, we didn't know, you know, anything that was happening until we got there. And the police officer said that he heard it was a, you know, concentration camp. And then the conductor of this train that saw us and picked us up in the last leg of getting to Port Cartoon, I mean, Matthews Ridge, Said that you know he said there's shootings in, in Port Kaituma and we said well he, the conductor said well it can't be them because of where we were on the road mm. you know where we were where, you know there's no way he could have we could have been in Matthews Ridge <clears throat> and so 
that's the first time we learned that they were shooting at Port Kaitimus, although we had no details on what happened. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so the, the next... Mm-hmm. I was just kind of sort of like, yeah, I was kind of sort of reiterate what you're saying. So, yeah, you, you guys have spent... How long was the journey? I know uh, you said miles-wise, but how long was the journey, like, hours-wise? Because I think in the book, I recall it was like, this is an all-day affair. Like, I think, like, maybe, I think I think maybe you arrive at the police station, like, at night. So we're talking, like, from we got, 9 a.m. to, like, you know, maybe 9 at night or something, like 12 hours, right? It, it was a long walk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was, it was it was a walk to free of them, but it was a long, you know, long walk, and that, you know, being working out in the jungle and being in shape helped because we traveled. It was a long, long journey, hmm. and we didn't know. We never knew how far away we were. We just kept walking, waiting for some lights, to, you know, waiting for lights, but we never knew how far we had to go. You know, we knew it was 30-something miles. We we never knew at what point how close we were because we just – we there was no way for us to tell. There's no markers. Right, you right. Know. Yeah. Um you just walk until you find civilization because that, that, exactly. that'll be your route out. So exactly. then you, so then I, you know, then then you you get to the police station. Then sort of like all hell breaks loose in a sense where it's like, you know, uh, Jonestown's imploded pretty much. And but you guys, how did you eventually find out all this? They kind of like clued you in in the in the days after it all went down. No, um, that night, you know, I heard these military helicopters flying overhead that night. The, the men stood guard over us, and we, the women slept. There was three women and then the, you know, and four children. Mm-hmm. And so um, I woke up to this, the sound of these military helicopters flying over. And I thought, what is, you know, I thought they were landing in Matthews Ridge, but they weren't. They, they were flying overhead. And so the next morning, the captain came in. He says, you know, we have a report. 500 are dead and 500 ran into the jungle. And the first thing I'm thinking was those helicopters. You know, they had to be, people were shot. I'm thinking people people were murdered, but why? Yeah. What happened? Because we still don't know who died. We still don't know the details of Port Kaituma. We didn't even know the congressman who had, had been killed yet. And this is the first congressman that died in the line of duty ever, the first one ever in the history of the United States. And so we didn't have any clue of the details of Port Kaituma, but we did know that the report was 500 had died and 500 ran to the jungle. And I just prayed, you know, that my that somebody from my family, if not all, had made it out. Yeah. And so we didn't know until we got, and they flew us into Georgetown, the capital, and that's when we started hearing 400, 400 were found. So I'm still thinking, well, there's still, where's, everybody else must be hide, hiding in the jungle. And then, the, and then the body count started changing, and so by the next two days, they've accounted for 918 bodies. Oh my God! And what was? How were they treating you guys? Like, because you know now today, tonight we're talking, we're celebrating your remarkable like escape from all this. But at the time, like you said, people were treated really differently coming out of there. So like, what was? I, I recall in the book, they, you know, the U.S. government was like, "Yeah, we'll fly you back to America for twelve hundred bucks." It's like, Jesus, right. dude, what is? You have some compassion for these people, for God's sakes, help them. Right. So, like, what was was that sort of the overriding feeling, I guess, from the authorities, uh, Guyanan or American? You know, what, how are they treating you guys who miraculously made it out? Well, it, that was State Department, basically. You know, it just reiterated how crazy how how we hated the US. 
this is what they do. This is what they, they only care about money. That was just like, that was the first thought almost. Like, this is what they do. We just lost our hope. We've, they're, <laughs> this is a major tragedy. You're talking about, we have to pay you back. We're U.S. citizens. Right. And so that left a really bad taste in our mouth. And then and that was in a school. And then they moved us to the hotel, which was filled with reporters. And, um, but they were kind to us, you know. They gave us a, they gave us rooms, and we all had, you know, it was like a suite. And, um, but it was not, you know, we were. I was still numb. I hadn't even accepted. I still had hoped that my family was alive, even after they said nine hundred. I still hoped, you know, that somebody in my family had survived, that somebody would come walking in. Hmm. You know, I, I, I still hoped for that. Yeah. I hadn't. There's no way I could have, you know, mentally handled that at that point, that everybody was lost. I just couldn't have. Yeah. I mean, at the risk of uh, at the risk of being, uh, of dredging this up, I feel like it needs to be said because uh, it's on the back mm-hmm. of the book here. And when you really hear it, when you read it, it's so powerful. You know, amongst those 900 people, folks, are Leslie's husband, her mother, her brother, her sister, her niece, her nephew, her sister-in-law, her brother-in-law, and friends she had grown up with and loved since the age of 13. That's, mm. I mean, you know, uh, there were like 900 people there. How many, I mean, that's a small, relatively kind of small community. You must have known dozens, maybe over 100, a couple hundred people. I mean, how many, you must have known a lot of these people, right? Oh, I did because, you know, I worked in healthcare too and then just, not just those people, but, you know, we had people from Port Kaituma, the Guyanese, the Mar- um, they're called Amerindians that came in to get health care. And so, and there was children that were lost that, that were given up for adoption to, to Jonestown who died too. It was just, it was a horrific, horrific day. Um, and it's still, you know, for, for children don't commit suicide. We, we lost 306 children. Yeah. Babies, you know, and, and seniors who just wanted a safe haven. And I think that's the anger that I kept inside for so many years is why would you take everybody? You know, why would you take everybody? Yeah. Um, it's, so it is, it's a, yeah, it's been difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just remarkable. Um, it's, so you're back, you're, so so eventually you get taken, you get, you get they bring you back to America, you know? So you, right. Yeah, and that's kind of like where, well, what's interesting to me was I thought, you know, I I was trying to sort of get into your head here, and it sort of like stuck out to me when reading the book. It's like you were still, even by the time you got back to America, especially before you got to America, you know, when you were still kind of hanging around Guyana and, and, and dealing with reporters and all that and other people and everything, but even... When you get back to America, you're still kind of like looking over your shoulder. You're thinking that these these hit squads are going to come and take you out for oh for leaving Jonestown. It's like, right. it. I guess at what point did you kind of realize, okay, this is over. Like it's over, over. Like at least as far as not. We're not talking about the PTSD and all the mm-hmm. all the difficulties you had, but I mean just that that, that they're not going to get you for for leaving. It took about fifteen years. Oh my God. I mean, I carried a twenty two with me everywhere I went. I, I carried a twenty two in my purse going to work every day. I, I was never without a gun. Because you thought that someone yes. was going to get you for leaving. And there were so many people that died. Sometimes I would see someone and think, oh, there's so-and-so. Then I had to call my friend, did so-and-so die? 
because there were so many people that you you know you'd see people and think, oh my God, it looks like is that so and so? You know, right. Um, and so the fear was there, and then of course the Myrtles, who you know wrote the Six Years with God, they were killed. Their whole family was killed, except for two people. And so we thought then that's when, and that was that was in um, that was in eighty, I think eighty two. We thought then it's it's starting, <laughs> you yeah. know, because they left. I'm like, okay, so they're, and that's, you know, and I was still carrying a gun. Um, and I want to say 81, I think. I was working at the San Francisco Hotel. Um, that we're thinking, okay, it's starting, you know, and then nothing else happened. But people died from suspicious ways yeah. um, sometimes. But um, it took a long time for me to feel safe. Well, that brings up another issue, but I, I just want to ask you because we're we're we got about fifteen minutes left in the show, but sometimes we go over. Do you mind going a little bit over uh, if we if we if we run out of uh, if we run out of time on the live show? No, I'm good. Okay, I won't keep you too much longer. I promise. But uh, oh, that's okay. I want to, you know, the, the we, you know, the, the the whole second half of the book is remarkable, and we're not going to take you through the whole journey there, folks. But uh, mm-hmm. I want to talk about the difficulties you face, and I don't want to have to rush through that because that wouldn't really do justice mm-hmm. to your journey. Um, so I just wanted to clear that with you. Um, so, so you're living in this state of paranoia and also this sort of like, it, that, this, see, that makes me angry. The part where you talk about earlier here when we, in this conversation, you know, that people, that people like just look down on these folks who made it out and everything, you know, it's like, you don't see that Mm -hmm. nowadays. You like those girls from Cleveland, Mm -hmm. it's a whole different thing, but it's Mm -hmm. kind of the same, but you know, like people, people lifted them up. It's like it's it's just no one no one lifted you guys up. That's that's really that's just breaks my heart, really, you know, when I when I learn that. Right. Well, I mean, the first you know, when the bodies were discovered, they only did I think seven um autopsies. It wasn't a murder scene, it was suicide. And so there were reports that most of the people had been shot or injected with their shoulder blades, in their shoulder blades. And so Yes, some people. Yes, some people took the poison. Yes, they did. But I, but I know someone witnessed my sister fighting like hell for her children. Yeah. You know, and that that would be her. That would be her. And so, but the stigma was the way that it was portrayed in the media. We were we were portrayed with all these people, and all you saw was dead bodies laying in the jungle. Yeah. With kids, you know, and so people can't and think this is 1978. But there's been such a shift, and I'm so grateful that there's such a shift of people that understand and they're they're empathetic and they're caring, and 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 you have some that aren't. That just you know, I got an email that was just ranting on me, and I I just I just responded with love, you know, because that's your opinion, that's how you feel. Of course, they didn't respond back, but um, you still have some people that that think you know we're crazy and you know this and that, but what I see because we were stigmatized. And so for 20 years, I lied about who I was. Right. You know, I never, I changed my name. I, people said, did you have a family? No, I'm an orphan or my family was killed in a car accident. I never admitted that I was part of Jonestown because of what it, of what it brings, of what it brought, hmm. you know, suspicion. And, you know, you're so, and then even in my relationships with people, I would slowly get, let them get to know me. You know, so they can see that I'm not crazy. You know that I'm normal, that I can hold a conversation, I can articulate, and I'm not, you know, knocking my head up against a wall. You know, with my thumb in my mouth, I'm okay. Right. Um, But it took time for me. So even now, it takes time for me to uh, 
as much as I'm out there, I still, there's many, many people that I know now that don't know. Hmm. Only because the conversations never came up. <laughs> I hear you. I understand. Um, now, was there was there ever really sort of like a sufficient investigation into just like, because, you know, if this happens like now, you'd like to think that like the... The government would, I guess, because it's in Guyana. It's maybe it maybe it wouldn't be the case because the the the, uh, the government in Guyana would investigate, and I presume that's kind of how it's how it all went down down there. But it's like, was there ever any sufficient investigation where they they could you know they knew how everybody who was there died, like where they could go like you have an amazing yeah. list at the back of the book that has all the people that died, mm-hmm. like that you could go to that person and go, oh, okay, this was that and the other thing. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, because there was no autopsies, and by the time they got the bodies out, they were they were they were already decomposing. So this is how deep this is. When they there was you know I met a chap I met a chaplain who was in who was in Delaware at Dover when the bodies came back, and he said he was just it shook it, it actually pushed him into the, into the, into being a chaplain. Yeah. And he works at mental institutions, et cetera. In prisons, but he said there was a there was a there was a mortician there who they called him something because he was just solid as rock. N- nothing ever rocked him. He had a nervous breakdown after after being at Dover Air Force Base because that's where all the bodies were brought back. And and when we got my when we got my my dad only got my mom and my I'm sorry my sister and my brother the bodies claimed because you know there's no open caskets. My brother weighed more than my sister, which is impossible. My sister was like 5'11". My brother was my height, like 5', you know, he was a little taller, 5'6". I'm 5'3". Yeah. So we don't know who we got because they just tagged the bodies and, 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 and put them in boxes. But there was no cemetery in the United States. No cemetery would take our bodies. None of them would take the bodies. And the only cemetery that took the bodies was in Evergreen in Oakland, California. They they didn't and, and you know and there was a legal battle to get the bodies back to California because the majority of people were from California lived in California yeah so there was no formal investigation because first of all there was no autopsies done but seven they left the bodies out there too long and so they were you know they it was a horrific scene it was a horrific scene so no there was no formal investigation and I hate to even go down this route but it's sort of mm-hmm. like you know this show we cover a lot of like conspiracy and paranormal stuff and mm-hmm. you know the, the Jonestown story has come up a, a lot where people sort of uh suggest that uh that Jim Jones was mixed up with the CIA and this was some kind of CIA thing why I have mm-hmm. no idea why the why the mm-hmm. CIA would want to m- murder 900 people in in Guyana but you know it's out there the theory is and as someone who mm-hmm. sort of uh, experienced the whole thing what are your thoughts? Do you think that this could have been sort of the machinations of a of an intelligence operation, or do you think it was just sort of a a good idea gone very very wrong? I don't I don't think that's I don't think that's far fetched. I just don't. You know, and I, and I say that because of the way everything. You know, when we to have all this money coming into to a country that's you know all this money coming in that was U.S. money to have the U.S. Embassy coming into Jonestown more than one time. You know, to to there was just too there was too it was too perfect it was too it was too it was done too easily mm. you know and and so and for me to and I you know and I talked to someone about those helicopters who was who was in who was in Park Ituma and they said to me it was a report I'm not going to say who he was but I said um, I heard helicopters he goes no they were coming from 
um, they landed in Matthews Ridge. And I said, no, they did not. And so when I looked at the map, because there's, there's talk about a, a, a team in Venezuela. When I looked at the map, the Venezuela, Matthews Ridge is right there next to Venezuela. And that's where the helicopters were coming from, you know, the south, because, you know, Guyana would be north or, 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 or I guess, east of, of, of Venezuela. We were on the border. Yeah. And, and those helicopters were, were, I know what military helicopters sound like. They were military helicopters. But there's no reports of any helicopters landing, even in Matthews Ridge that night. Congresswoman Spears and the people that were injured laid in, laid in, uh, she laid in the bed of red ants getting ate up not knowing because she was shot. Yeah. There was no hel- there was no rescue that night. So where were the helicopters coming from? And yeah. where were they going? Interesting. And where were they going? So when I hear about the first reports and there was there was rumors that gunshots were through the night, when I hear the re- when I hear the reports when that captain said 500 and run to the jungle and 500 dead, then that made me think there's something going on. When the body counts when they said the bodies were laid on top of each other, that bodies were that's that's BS. Yeah. There's no way those bodies would have been li- how would they get on top of each other? They were, you know, they didn't. They didn't know it was 918 people. It's a bunch of crock to me. I, I never believed that. So, is could something else go on? I absolutely. There is a, so much a bigger story here. Will I will it ever be exposed in my lifetime? I don't know. Hmm. But it didn't happen the way. There's more to it. There's definitely more to it. Even the death tape. I can't believe the death tape ended where it ended. I just, I just don't think so. What do you mean by that? Because I, I need. Uh, well, I, I've only listened. Ended, you know, it's a long tape, and I've only listened to a little yeah. bit of it because it's, it's very unsettling. So, what, what do you mean by the ending of the tape? I mean, there was no. There was. It just ended kind of abruptly. It wasn't. There had to be more going on. Yeah. I just don't believe. You know, there had to be more people fighting. You didn't hear. You didn't hear all that. Mm. You just didn't hear all that. But you know, it's interesting because the ambassador to Guyana, U.S. ambassador to Guyana. Um, Ambassador Bainey was at the, you know, we had plaques on the lay down at this at the cemetery with everyone's names on it, and he he came and what he said was he was a radio because you know Guyana was very corrupt, George very corrupt government yeah with um, Burnham, and uh, he said that he was on the radio and they told him only say thirty five had died, so it was already a cover up. There was already there was always stuff going on already. Yeah, well, and he was young. He was, oh, you know, okay, <laughs> you know, he's told to. Say thirty-five, and He's you just know that's what orders. they said. He just does what they tell exactly. Him. Well, that's exactly. really so. Oh, God, you wonder what really. Ah, it's very. I'm left speechless on that one because I don't know what really to make of it. Uh, well, when I saw the picture of Jim Jones, you know, when the, we were at the uh, hotel and they showed us pictures, I saw a picture of Joe in a bed, which I've never seen his bed before, with because he had a lover with his lover, and another woman two other women laying face up like they were sleeping. There was no there was no blood. There was no cyanide, like, you know, because, you know, cyanide is a very violent death mm-hmm. um, as far as what your body goes through. They looked like they were sleeping. And I thought, how did they get to, and how did they get to the bed looking so perfectly, just perfect, you yeah. know, like they were sleeping. And then I saw the picture of Jim and the and the guy, and I guess, I don't know who it was. It must have been somebody, I don't know what agency was asking me these questions. Um, but um, he says, here's a picture of Jim. Does it look like Jim? I said, I don't know. I said, you know, he had a double. He's like, I'm like, yeah, he had a double. I didn't believe Jim Jones was dead for a long time. <laughs> I just thought he's 
living somewhere with, with some money that nobody found, you know, with a total face transplant and on some beach or somewhere, starting another church somewhere. I just It took me a long time to think that he was actually dead because he was too egotistical. Yeah, yeah, it makes you wonder, like, well, you know, if there's a greater conspiracy at work and if he was in cahoots with the government, it's entirely possible that they just oh my gosh. got him out of there and, you know, threw him in a witness protection program or something, you know, an evil so, witness protection right. program, but still. Yeah, the evil witness. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's really unsettling. Uh, we're going to lose the live audience in a couple minutes. Where can folks, uh, we'll get extra plugs in later, but where can folks find out more from you? Uh, LeslieWagnerWilson.com, of course, and... Uh, the book is uh, slaveryoffaith.com, right? Yes, and they can purchase it on Amazon. Awesome. It's a fantastic book, folks. I absolutely loved it. I I really, uh, I have a feeling, having listened to this show, it's a story that will, like I said earlier, carry on with people for quite some time. It's, It's really, uh, it's really, really amazing. And you mentioned when the authors of that book, uh, and their families were murdered, you said, uh, oh, we said that it, you know, it's starting. Uh, that sort of uh, touched on a question I had for you because it's never mentioned in the book. Um, mm-hmm. Did you keep in touch with any of these folks that made it out of Jonestown? Do you guys ever talk or do you ever see each other? Or, mm-hmm. or you know, what, what, what's your relationship like with the other survivors? Well, us youngsters, you know, we call ourselves the youngsters. We still have, we still connect because, again, mm-hmm. It's all, it, you know, they're all we have left. You know, all high school friends are gone. So there's about six of us that, six or seven that are close. There's, you know, they're, we, they're starting to write. We have some people there, young people that are starting to write, which is good. Um, and sometimes I see the elders, I call them. Um, I was just at a, a gathering about three weeks ago in Los Angeles, and I was able to connect with um, people that had actually left and I hadn't seen for years. You know, they're in their 70s. Oh, wow. Um, and yeah, I had some really good conversations, and um, so it's interesting to be around people. I love being around the. Well, I've been around people that still had issues. Um, one person said, "Well, you didn't look like you were starving." <laughs> you know, oh God! Deny. Well, you know, people have their people have to deal with what they can, you know what they can deal with. Yeah. Um, Let me just say good night to the live audience. Thanks for listening, mm-hmm. folks, and. Uh, Stay tuned for some after chat here with Leslie Wagner Wilson. Now, go on. I'm sorry. You, you you keep in good touch with these folks, relatively, right? Yes, yes, and and so so it's interesting when I meet people like that that still kind of say, "Oh, well, the food was great, and you know, I love Jonestown, and you know, it was okay. I don't know why you didn't like it, and I don't understand that." Uh, I said, "Well, I don't know what where what Jonestown you were in, but I didn't particularly <laughs> care for what I was going through, you know." Um, so yeah, there's some, um, especially the youngers, you know, us young folks that are still, you know, here, amazed that we're still here, um, it, that some were left behind. <laughs> Go ahead. You know, I was gonna say it's, it's just amazing. It's just amazing uh, that you guys made it out. You know, and then, and then uh, you know, the second half of the book is this is, is sort of your struggle to fit in, your struggle to oh, sort of God. like it's you know it's really. It's scary in a whole other level, in a sense, because it's like you left this hell on earth and you come to a different hell on earth. You know, it's it's really, it's it's scary. It's really scary, and it's a remarkable story because, uh, like I said, it's it's an incredible journey. You know, you say to get, oh, she got out of Jonestown, everything's gonna be okay. It's like, oh, not so fast. <laughs> no, not so fast. You know, I had pe- I was really naive in a lot of ways, and I had people that were, I thought were. Um, 
looking out for my best interests that weren't. Huh. And that was kind of heartbreaking, you know, because I trust it. Um, but the journey has been, I've come a long way. Yeah. And I really understand myself better now and, you know, who I am. But the guilt was really what took such a major toll out of me was the fact that, you know, I thought, did my family think that I knew and left them? Um, and uh, that's why, you know, the drugs, you know, get into drugs and anything to numb the pain. And, you know, the majority of us that made it through, we had serious issues, drugs, alcohol, you uh. know, whatever, food, whatever the addiction was to try to, you know, ease the pain because it was horrendous. My heart was, you know, shattered into a million shards of glass. I mean, that's how I felt. I just felt broken and damaged. For years, I felt damaged. Did you, I guess you could talk about it with your grandparents and stuff, right? I mean, you had some people you could talk about it with, right? But otherwise, you were like going through life with this, uh, just this horrible like experience that you couldn't even discuss with anybody and you sort of had to keep down inside of you. That must have been... I can ima- I can only imagine um, the difficulty of sort of just trying to start a whole new life and, and, and like, just say, okay, this never happened. It's behind me now. It's like, whoa. Yeah, you make up you make up this person, you know, this story, and then you forget who you told and who you didn't. But I, you know, I couldn't really talk to my grandparents because they were mourning. You know, they were so hurt. Hmm. My dad was just, my dad was heart. My dad was just, my dad was crushed. He was, you know, my brother... And my father was so close. You know, my dad was one, he was outdoors, and they spent every summer. I mean, my dad was just crushed and broken. You know, this damaged so many people and generational. You know, it's generational. Right. That, um, you know, it was it was a journey. It's been a long journey, but gosh, I've I've come to a certain, I have, I have such peace now, you know, because I know, you know, I sometimes I think back. I can't believe that my life has been what it is. I, I ran into someone who read the book, and she said to me, "Honey, you've had such a horrible life." <laughs> and I never, I never, I looked at it. I'm like, no. I said, but I'm okay. I never looked at it like this horrible life. I just looked at it as this life that I had, and I had to get through. And I made a decision to, you know, to be to get healthy and be okay. Yeah. Well, at what point did you? Was there a moment, sort of, where you were like? I mean, you said the paranoia lasted 15 years, but was there a point sort of where you're like, I have to just, I have to unburden myself of this. I have to sort of like, I have to open up my life to to what happened, you know? And, and was there a turning point? There was. Um, I had finally, you know, achieved, you know, financial, a place of financial security, and I was married and living this really, what I called, what I thought was the American dream. But spiritually, I was just like, I felt dead. And I hit 50. And it was it was this turning point for me. And I thought, you know, you're on the way out. I never thought I would see 22, let alone 50. Yeah. And so I made this decision. You know, I said, I can't just live. I have to do more. I can't. This can't be all of my life. You know, I have to. I was active in my kids' school and all that. All that. But, I mean, I really wasn't, and we volunteered, you know, to help feed the homeless. We did things like that. But spiritually, I felt that I hadn't connected yet, and hence the book. You know, I started writing, and I went vegetarian, 
you know, I got clean, you know, clean food, you know, just cleaned up my body and I felt really good and I opened up and then I started really writing and then the healing started coming. You know, I felt like I had to release this to somebody because I thought my story, you know, you go through things and you look at your life and you're like, oh, anybody would have done that. (laughs) You know, that's nothing. Anybody would have done what I did. Yeah. Um, So you don't, you don't put a lot of stock into it. And then you realize that you know what you did you did you did okay, kid. <laughs> you know you. You did more you than okay, Leslie. You're. Not I don't know if I would have the strength to go through what you did. I mean, I just don't even know. That's just so remarkable. Um, you know, if you had, I guess, we you know we're talking about the conspiracy aspect of it, you know, and how things don't kind of add up, and it's like, mm-hmm. you know, you do wonder like what would have happened if you hadn't tried the escape that that day, if you hadn't escaped that day, you know, if you had been there uh, in the pavilion and it's like, there's a part of me that says, you know, there had to have been, there had to have been people trying to get out or whatever and they they must not have let them because it's the sheer law of numbers, like 900 people, you know, we're talking 600 adults, you know, 300 children, clearly they weren't really trying to get away, but 600 adults, I I don't care, there had to be people that were like, this is crazy. You're killing these children. We, I'm out of here, and and someone clearly did not let them leave either. Well, that's and that's the thing, you know, Tim. That's that's the that's what I think about when you think about the numbers, and and I think about security and who was there and what what kind of weapons, you know, the crossbows and the and the rifles, and but then you had all these people. But that's why they killed the children first, because if I had been there first, you know, would I would I have just went to the vat and drank in a cup of poison. No, no, no. You know, we came from a family that my mother was resilient. You know, she had she 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 had her own kind of way, um, classy, but she had a temper and she protected her children as best she could. My sister, no. You know, I would have been dead fight but I would have fought. There's no there's no way. There's no way. And that's where I that's where that question comes in. How did 600 people just lay down their life. They just, they, did, they didn't. I, I will never believe that. I will right. never believe that. Never, never. Yeah, it just doesn't no. stand to reason. It just doesn't stand Mm-mm. up to reason. Um, so I don't even, yeah. I can imagine, uh, well, I can't really imagine just the uh, the feelings you went through all those years afterwards, you know. Like I have here, you know, drugs, arrested, homeless at one point, contemplated suicide. <laughs> right. It's like this is really, right. you know. Someone should have helped you guys more. It's just heartbreaking. Uh, it's just really heartbreaking. Well, I think there was, there was, there were, there was, there were people that were there, but I didn't trust anybody. You know, mm. I just, I didn't have the trust to talk to anybody because I still didn't understand who anybody was. You know, I was already kind of duped by a couple of people that I trusted. You know, so I that kind of went out the the door. But I think what happened was, you know, holding it in all those years is what created the problems that I had, and never you know, angry, and I never thought I deserved anything good. How could I when my whole family died? Right, right. I just didn't think I really deserved to be happy and, like, truly happy. Surface-wise, oh, yeah, dancing, part, you know, partying, you know, doing drugs and all that. Yeah, that was surface, but, um, and that was just a cover. But inside, I was just, I was broken and damaged. And Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, and, you know obviously someone would have said this to you. You, you had no idea. You know, I mean, when you left that morning, you had no idea they'd all be gone by the end of the day. No, I I didn't. But I, you know, 
but for years I thought I should have known. And then I, after a lot of self-analysis, I thought, well, the only reason I, I couldn't have, I couldn't accept the fact that we would die from within, you know, the community. I couldn't, I couldn't have, I couldn't have faked that. I, that, that would have shown all over my face if I truly believed that. So I think it was a, a self-protection for me also. But, you know, we talked about resiliency, but everyone that survived Jonestown, um, even those that were at the Capitol, you know, who lost because so many people lost so many family members, they, they, they're okay. They're doing okay. A lot of people have picked up their lives and, they put it behind them. They don't want contact because it's just too painful. So yeah. there's people that are married who don't even know that they were involved, and they don't they don't come out, and that's okay. It's you know it's whatever works for them. Yeah, exactly. Um, now your son, he was only three uh, when you guys escaped. So does he have like any recollection of all this, or is he kind of, uh, or was it kind of too early in his life for him to have any memory of of Jonestown? It was too early in his life, but Jakari was damaged. Jakari came. Jakari ended up being, you know, um, having some mental issues, and and there's children that um, that were part of people simple that have long prison sentences. You know, Jakari was traumatized. You know, our children were traumatized. I don't, you know, I think I put in the book about the kids and how they were taught to be little soldiers. You know, I'll, right. you know, put my mother's hand in the garbage disposal if she leaves the church. I mean, we, that's how we raised. That's how the children were being raised. They were they were damaged, um, and those that survived are were damaged still. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness! How many of you guys are still around now after all these years of the survivors? Do you know? I guess you kind of maybe checked out, so I guess you don't really know. Well, probably I, I would say probably a hundred, maybe, um, that are kind of connected. Um, some connect with others and don't connect with others. You know, it just depends yeah, on who yeah. they were. But not that many. But survivors, as far as who left who left Jonestown, there's only probably um, out of 32 of us, there might be maybe 20 left, maybe. My goodness. And of the hundreds, you mean like people who are also like still back in San Francisco doing stuff and, and that kind of thing. Right. What was there? Right. Now, what was, you know, what was what was the reaction of the people like, I guess you didn't talk to them, right? I mean, you didn't come back and go oh. to the headquarters and be like, "Hey, man, everyone killed themselves. What, what, what the f? You know, like, so what? What, what, what do we do now? Right, right. No. So I guess you don't really know what like their reaction was, but since we don't have, to, I mean, there's no People's Temple anymore, so I presume sort of they just, they kind of just checked out of the whole scene because they were like, "Whoa, this is not. I guess I'm not going to Guyana anymore. I better go get a job. You know, that kind of thing, right? Right. Well, yeah, some people connect. You know, they connected and married and moved out of state. You know, and living their lives. And there's some that, um, um, you know, there's. I would say I was. I probably know three people. I think if they said let's start a people's temple, they'd probably be there. My goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a hard thing to reckon with. I think especially for adults that got caught up. You know, because they were, I mean, because we were really bamboozled. I mean, seriously, we were, this was a totally three ring, this was a, like an eight ring circus that was going on. Yeah. Um, and those that played a major part in that, um, they have some, they're, they're dealing with some things for sure. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine if you were like the person who was based in San Francisco that was like in charge of facilitating stuff for, for Jonestown, it's like you get the news and then you're like, what have I done? What have I been a part of? You know, right. I can only imagine right. the, the, uh, the feelings that that must engender. Um, exactly, exactly. Well. So, you know, we we love them all. 
That's yeah. Everybody, well, I gotta say, the book's everybody. a powerful message of love. Um, Thank you. You know, it's a really, it's really, and and perseverance and resiliency, and um, mm. you know, like you said earlier, it's like you thought you didn't have an exciting life or something like that. It's like Leslie. I can't. I I don't think I could ever have a bad day again after after reading this no. book. Where it's like, you think you got it, bad man? Like, look at this, look at what this this lady had to go through. This is horrifying. Um, so. Right, but you know what my but I tell people because I hear that a lot. And but I say your pain and your tragedy does not. Don't let mine diminish that. Yours is still important. Yours is exactly what your what you know what your journey is right now. It doesn't. It doesn't diminish what you're what what you're going through. I just and there's many people. There's there's so many stories out there, you know, worldwide that are just horrible tragedies. And I just think that, um, you know, we can only combat it. You know, the evil with with love. That's all we can. You know, that's how I try to move through my life is just being a loving person and trying to you know make a difference somewhere. Yeah. Sounds good. Sounds good. Um. I think that's it. I was going to ask you what this uh, about. You kind of explain it in the book, so maybe we'll leave that for mm-hmm. folks to pick up uh, the, the, what the meaning of slavery or faith is. So we'll, we'll we'll sort of let that we'll let that resonate for folks who pick up the book. Uh, I cannot put this okay. this this book over enough, folks, because I've already taken up enough of your time, Leslie. I know you. <laughs> I know you. You have. Well, a I've enjoyed it. I, I've had an absolute. Uh, I've, I, 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 it's. It kind of goes back to the original first question of this conversation, you know. It's like I, I don't. I'm afraid to say I had fun talking to you, but I but I did because I learned so much, and I really appreciate okay. you opening up and 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 sharing this story. It needs to be told, and I'm just thrilled that you uh, that you came on the program here tonight and and talked about it and shared it with folks. The book is Slavery of Faith. The website slaveryoffaith.com. LeslieWagnerWilson.com is her website as well. Folks, I I recommend a lot of books on this show. I cannot put this book over enough. It is absolutely outstanding. It's riveting. It's heartbreaking at times. It's uh, just incredibly enlightening. Um, Everybody's heard the Jonestown story, but now you get the chance really to hear the story of someone who uh, went through the whole journey, and it's absolutely amazing, and, and came out of it on the other side, and then had to go through a whole other journey afterwards of, of, of recovery from this experience mm-hmm. and uh it's a, it's an amazing testament to the power of the human spirit uh it really really is so folks pick up slavery of faith you will absolutely not be disappointed it is tremendous and leslie thank you so much again for coming on the show uh if there's anything thank i can ever do me. to help out please let me know i'd be more than happy to i appreciate that thanks for having me it was a great interview thank you very much There you go, folks. That was Leslie Wagner Wilson, author of the book, Slavery of Faith. Please, folks, go out and pick it up. It is really, really something else. Uh, It is just tremendous. And I want to give a big thanks uh, to Brian Alvarez's After Dark radio show for turning me on to Leslie's story. And uh, after I heard that, she was on the top three list to get on BOA Audio Season 9. I'm really thrilled we managed to uh, get it done here tonight. If you're just discovering the program for the first time and you're and you're wondering what exactly this is, it is Banal of America. We are a long-standing paranormal conspiracy and esoteric podcast, although nowadays it seems we're moving even further into the uh, alternative history and true crime realm. But all that said, you can find out more about us at banalofamerica.com. Pretty simple, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. We're also on Facebook. You can find out 
in-house notes and uh, throwback segments posted there. You can find that via going to uh, Banal of America on Facebook. Just punch in what I just told you, uh, Banal of America. That will bring up the Facebook page. Like us. That's where you'll hear info on upcoming shows and all that good stuff. What else here? Uh, Well, if you're just discovering the program, you're in luck because we have a massive archive of 200-plus shows that is absolutely free. You can dig into at any time, covering just an amazing array of topics in the world of paranormal, conspiracy, true crime, alternative history, just anything under the sun we've talked about here on the program over the last nine years. And uh, all that is free. This program tonight was free, and it came to folks live absolutely free. All that stuff costs me money. A lot of good folks have stepped up to the plate over the last few weeks as we've been calling for donations. i got to keep beating the drum, though, because uh, this program does cost me quite a bit to put together and to uh, get out to people. So if you want to help us out, there's two ways to do so. You can head on over to Banal of America and click the PayPal button. That will bring you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe, secure, and simple. But if you don't trust the internet and you want to make a snail mail donation, you can do so by going to Banal of America and finding the P.O. Box address. It's right there on the website. Jot that down and then fire off whatever you'd like to uh, send us at B-O-A-H-Q. And as always, I should note, all donations are go towards keeping Banal of America up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. On the next edition of BOA Audio, we're going to be delving into the world of, uh, I don't even know what you'd call it. Our guest is Joshua Cutchin. He's the author of the new book, A Trojan Feast, The Food and Drink Offerings of Aliens, Fairies, and Sasquatch. And uh, it's it's remarkable stuff, folks. I, I got the book the other day in the mail and immediately ran to my computer and said, uh, found Joshua Cutchin and said, please, dude, you got to come on Banal of America. i got to talk about this book with you. A Trojan Feast, the Food and Drink Offerings of Aliens, Fairies, and Sasquatch. What is this? Stories of, of aliens and fairies and Sasquatch giving food and drinks to people they encounter, and what happens to these people? What are these stories all about? We're going to get into all that with Joshua Cutchin on the program next week. That will be coming at you May 28th, and it will be live on BOA Audio at 8 p.m. on Thursday, May 28th. Joshua Cutchin talking about a Trojan feast. And uh, let me see if there's anything else to say, really. Not really. We're not going to do any listener feedback here because it's 11.20 p.m. Eastern Time, and I've got about 15 minutes to uh, settle in, get down, and get ready for the final edition of The Late Show with David Letterman. And I'm a huge, huge, huge David Letterman fan, and uh, I'm really going to miss the guy. And I just love the program, grew up on it. Uh, I remember watching it back in the day, back uh, when it was on at 12.30 on NBC, and uh, just made the switch to CBS when Dave made the switch, and have just enjoyed the program for years and years and years, and just feeling old tonight, remembering uh, when Johnny Carson signed off, and I was just a wee lad, and uh, and remember how sad my dad was that night, and in a strange kind of way, I, I feel a kinship with my, my late father as I... Get ready to watch the final edition uh, of Dave's show, who is kind of like the Johnny Carson of my generation. So it's going to be a a wistful evening here tonight. 
And uh, so there's not going to be any listener feedback. Enjoy the show, folks. Once again, let me give big thanks to Leslie Wagner Wilson, Slavery of Faith. Just tremendous, folks. I feel like it's an instant classic edition of BOA Audio, and uh, I cannot wait for the general audience of Banal of America, the MP3 listeners, not the live folks, the folks who download the program. They're they're in for a real treat when they get their hands on this. Uh, but I guess they've already listened to it by now because they're listening to me talk. So I will <laughs> wrap up the program. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. Thanks to the hardcore BOA Audio listeners. Another home run here from BOA Audio, folks. So thank you for your enduring support. We try to come through when we can. And thank you to all the newcomers who've just discovered the program. Dig into the archive. Lots of good stuff in there. And of course, as always, thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall. Thanking you for listening. 